Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And I'm Phil Wolf of the Nefers Initiative. This is the Herpeticulture Podcast, which is part of the Herpeticulture Network. Enjoy the show. I have mental problems. But anyways, this is episode 110. Yeah. Herpeticulture Podcast. I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. I'm Phil Wolf of the Nefers Initiative. And we're both of Herpeticulture Magazine. And yeah. it's all part of the Herpeticulture Network. I feel like I completely hijacked that whole word, Herpeticulture. You did. And used it for, for branding purposes. But It's perfect. The funny story about that, like the whole magazine thing, is like me and Billy for like four days were going back and forth on names and nothing fit as well as Herpeticulture Magazine. So... It's all encompassing. We just we just rolled with it. That's what it was too. It was like I don't, you know, it's not going to be just reptiles. It's not going to be just snakes. I mean, we really don't have anything else to work with, so that was it. I guess it, it could have Wamata or something like that, but even then, that's no. Yeah. I like it. It's all it, it's all encompassing of our community and our hobby and our passion and our trade. You know, it covers everything from you know snakes to bugs to glass terrariums. And snakes with hats. Little sweaters. Little parkas. Little wings on your bearded dragon. I mean, it's like 90 degrees here in Indiana, so I mean, (laughs) I'm going to have to start knitting downstairs and start putting blankets on things. (laughs) Well, this episode is brought to you by Steve Snakes and his Venom Hot Sauce. Please check it out if you like hot sauce. If you're a food person and you like to kick things up a notch, definitely check out his... uh, selection he's got pretty much something for everybody and then sean at mp cages and exotics if you need an awesome rack you need an awesome cage sean is the man to talk to uh but tonight bob rock joins us again this might be the first time we've had someone back to back and then i think, our, I think it might be our guest of honor is, is mr matt most of sarpa mitra and we're going to talk about some colubrids Call you Brits. Call you Brits. Is this the first time that we've ever had? You know, this is the second time we've ever had two guests on at once. I don't know. We're 110 episodes in, dude. I can't keep up anymore myself. So, like I said, you're an extraterrestrial. I got a feeling we're going to be going on some tangents tonight for sure. And oh, you know, that's 100. percent that's become my secret. Like when I send an outline to someone, I keep it to like less than 10 questions because I just know there's a very good chance we're not even going to get to the bottom of that list because of all the tangents. But you it also what? doesn't keep things too strict. It keeps things a little loose to where there's just enough guidance. There's just enough like the, the rails are on the gutters just to keep you from fully falling in. Well, and the reason why I even asked earlier, well, I was just like, well, what species do you want to talk about? I mean, Rob and I, we could talk about Dion's for like hours. Well, that's I was I, I added that to the outline last minute. I did not send it to you, but I, me and Rob have been talking about those a good bit lately too. And so I was curious to get your your thoughts on some of that stuff. Um, but you know, we 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 here at THN like to skip all the usual like how did you get in the snakes because everyone's story is more or less the same most of the time. Um, but I'm more curious as to how how you managed to like what drove you to get into the species that you're in right now because you're you know anybody who pays attention to you on social media they know that you're very much into montane asian colubrids uh, you know asian rat snakes you've got some african stuff that's really sort of off the wall um 
so what i mean we're in an age where that a lot of that stuff is not the norm for the bulk of a collection and so what's the what was the yeah. motivation for getting into that stuff so, um i mean kind of going back so my background i actually went to school for herpetology not directly as a broad sense but uh, I went to Loyola University of Chicago. I did a master's in biology there, and I did spatial ecology of garter snakes within Illinois and That's did a lot of GIS, um, pit tagging, tracking different herps in that vicinity of Lake Forest, Illinois. And it's mm -hmm. kind of how I got really connected into what I would say the herpticulture aspect of it. Um, especially working with Rob Carmichael of the Wildlife Discovery Center and getting to work with venomous, getting to work with a wide variety of different species. Um, but after that, I was recruited for a PhD at UMass and did stuff for National Geographic, Discovery Channel, did a lot of stuff with venomous then at that point. Um, but really within all of that, working with the Asian species, I mean, I worked and started with coxi. I mean, that was kind of like okay. the epitome and start off of it all. Mm -hmm. um, and it was kind of by accident, I would say. Um, I was in grad school and Brian Potter from Chicago Reptile House, he was like, hey, uh, you want to work with some of these coxi? Um, and we'll just split the babies. And I was like, sure, whatever. And because I really liked them, I mean, I couldn't afford them at the time, you know, grad student. And at that point in time, I mean, pro exotics was kind of the leading person yeah. in, in breeding some of that stuff. Um, but started doing research. And I think, Rob, you and I even talked about like some of the lineage there. And unfortunately, I, I kind of went a roundabout way and picked up some from Europe, actually directly from Kloss and tried and it brought them over and started working with them in that direct respect. And, you know, after that, I was like, well, I got to breed every species or subspecies of porphyracea because it just got addicting. You're like, whoa, hold on. These animals live at a cool temperature, room temperature. I don't need heating. I don't need this. I don't need that. They're awesome, natural, beautiful, you know, iridescent animals. And so after coxa, I got um lettucinctus after that i got pulcher and then came the hard part was actually finding volanti mm -hmm. which finding pure volanti is like finding a hundred dollar bill in a crack house you're not gonna <laughs> find it <laughs> you know no matter how many mattresses you look under you're just not gonna <laughs> that's amazing but you know um like rob can even tell you i mean in the hobby here, especially in the States, so many people have gotten into this um, monetary value or looking towards the value of, well, if I cross this with this and get this cool looking snake, it's going to be worth X amount of dollars. But Rob's then when, says it all. <laughs> yeah. when it all falls out and people are like, no, I want just coxi or I want volanti, lettuce. Yep. Good luck. And you can't find it now it's like like what's going on um so kind of then going off of that then i was like talking with Kloss, talking with um rex knight uh talking with stan grumbeck 
Carl Kromke, like some of the big people in the Asian rat snake realm, um, it really kind of lured me in and just kept bringing it in further and further. And then, heck, even Rob, I picked up some um, Dion's from Rob and stuff like that. And it just kept adding and adding and adding. And then all of a sudden now I'm at like 300 plus Asian rat snakes and I still got room to grow. Um, and it, it, you know, it gets challenging with some of that because one of the hard parts is then, you know, you're so interested in a group of species that requires the same temperature care. But then you're like, now I want to verge over and right. work get some more traditional stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so traditional in the sense of you need heat and things like that. <clears throat> right. And I probably didn't answer your question directly, but that's kind of how it all started. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And it's it's funny too because like the guys that are that are heavy into you know Asian and old world rat snakes, it's it's it seems like it's very rarely like a casual thing. Hmm. It's like unless you're Casey Cannon and you just have a pair of, you know, mandarins and you, you know, you talk about how much you love them, you know, like guys like Billy, you know, he has a heavy focus on, on a lot of Asian rats. Um, it's just, it's never, it never seems to be like a casual thing. It's like those guys are when, if they're in it, they're in it. It's like Pokemon, man. Got to catch them all. Well, and even like at that point you couldn't find pure stuff. So mm -hmm. that Bushmaster was still importing stuff from China. So I was like, well, that's the only way I'm going to be able to get pure stuff. So I'd buy as many wild caught animals. Half of them would die within a week. And then the other half, you're hoping that you end up with a pair um, just because they're so highly stressed, parasitized. Mm -hmm. um, and when you bring them to a vet, they're like, uh, we might want to just throw them in a the freezer now. <laughs> and Rob knows exactly what I'm talking about because he's just down there laughing. Yeah, 100%, man. I'm just thinking of the time that I had a laddie get bound up and I took it in and said, hey, here's the deal. You got it. You have no concept of the levels of stress that this animal will feel just from this interaction. And they come back, They so they take it back and they come back to me and say, oh, well, we just, you know, essentially put a, um, what would the turn be they just opened up the vent and just were mess mucking around and whatever. And I, I said, okay, well, that snake's dead. And they, you know, it's the vet school up at Michigan State. And they're like, what do you mean? You know, it looks fine, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, cool. We'll see how it plays out. Sure enough, you know, that evening it died. And I told them the next day and they couldn't be couldn't even believe it. And I was like, yeah, I, I warned you and you didn't listen to me. <laughs> you yeah. just know they're just entirely different than a corn snake. I mean, they aren't in some ways, but in terms of that level of stress, it's a whole different thing. Right. And I guess that, that kind of answers sort of a the, the question of like, why isn't a lot of that stuff more popular? Because you would think, and I've, I've mentioned this before, you know, with me and Phil talking on snakes and stogies is just the the fact that you don't have to give them heat and that you can keep them at cooler temperatures and they do fine. Like you would assume that that would draw more people to them because it's like, oh, you know, I, I don't have to give them as much. You know, I don't have to worry about the only thing I have to worry about is I'm getting you know too warm. Um <laughs> And, and I, I agree to a sense on that. I, I think a bigger part is just the fact that so many of these animals have such a bad reputation for being wild caught that, you know, successively, I mean, these are 15, 20 years captive born now in the hobby. And as those animals become more and more captive born, you start to see feeding responses very different from what the wild caughts are. 
you start to move away from some of that parasitization of the mm -hmm. animal. Um, I mean, even talking about like rhino rats, I mean, we've learned a lot in terms of getting juveniles started. Um, mandarins started to as well, where notoriously like people tried to interfere and they would get babies and they couldn't get them feeding and they'd just start force feeding the animals. Um, where now you can really, from experience, a lot of that stuff, if you cool it down or or use some other type of uh, prey item, you can really start to get them feeding properly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we yeah. talked about that sort of that, uh, what's the word for it? The, uh, like the the myth husbandry in a sense, like last week we talked about that with, you know, Ganyasoma being a pretty big, you know, chronic offender in that, in that sense. And chondros even still. Um, right. Well, I will say, yeah. you know, porphyries are tough in the sense that if you keep them in the 30s, they feel like uh, you'd hit them against the table and they, you know, they'll bounce back, <laughs> you know, this sort of thing. But uh, keep them a little bit warmer in the winter and they do all right. So yeah, they probably don't, they'll, but they'll bounce back from it and do okay. But long run, don't keep them in the 30s and 40s where a rhino is, you know, hard as nails, that thing bites back and they'll move <laughs> around, tongue flick, all that at 33. I just remember, I just remember mandarins back in the day being on tables and like, you know, high price tags, crazy price tags. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and all of a sudden people were like, oh, that, that just dies well, you know, just buy it. So it dies. It's good. It's, they die great. And then that slowly transitioned to, hey, they're kind of difficult. You may want to try this and that. And then that evolves into, hey, they stress easy. So be advised. And now we're at the point where we are now. So, like, you guys paved the way for that stigma of it dies well to go away, and that's awesome. Some yeah, of it's body weight and metabolism, too, right, Matt? Like, yeah, compared to a void, it's like for something that's suffering stress or isn't, you know, for it to feel the effects of dehydration and lack of food and lack of ideal temperature, that's going to happen much faster in something with a smaller mass with a higher metabolism than it is in the Boyd stuff. Well, and even um, like Rob, you and I, we've talked about even too, you know, some of the people that work with um, rhinos or um, green bush rat snakes, sometimes they'll experience like blistering of the skin. Mm -hmm. and, and it's really nothing detrimental to the health of the animal, but it has to do with humidity. Because what ends up happening is a lot of people will keep these animals in too moist of an environment and they'll shed it out and be perfectly fine but it, it causes an alarm for a lot of people too as well um so you know monitoring your husbandry seeing what's going on with the animals um adjusting to that appropriately i think has brought a lot of um, knowledge to keeping a number of these species too as well well just on the subject of of deones and the you know the bimaculata that me and rob have been talking about lately you know i from everything I've I've been hearing and reading about them, you would assume that that's another species that would be more popular because, you know, the size is great for what most people are looking for. Like, um, I don't know as far as temperament wise, they seem pretty pretty relaxed. Uh, yeah, so I like Dion's. <laughs> I mean, I I think in the next, I would say five to six years here in the states, they're going to blow up. Yeah. Um, and I think they're going to blow up purely because we're seeing a lot of different 
naturally occurring locality specimens popping up with different coloration. Um, people are appreciating the Asian rat snakes a lot more, um, especially because they're smaller size. But I think people are also looking for different animals that are already established as captive born, not necessarily wild caught. Mm-hmm. And the small size, especially, I mean, most mature males of the Dion's, I mean, you're looking at 14 inches. Wow. So, you know, an animal that eats an adult fuzzy mouse or a small adult mouse, mm-hmm. you know, once a week or every other week. I mean, in the hobby, you can't beat that. They're cheap to feed for sure. You yeah. know, you're feeding, <laughs> you should feed a baby carpet or whatever. At least I hear people feed a baby carpets. It's crazy. Yeah. I just love the the patterning and the texturing. Like, you know, from far away, it almost looks like, I hate to say like shag carpet, but just the fact that there's so much diversity amongst each individual scale, but yet still uniform in its base color, it makes them just it makes them just look unique among any other thing. Yeah, those bimaculata especially, man, those are like the ones that, that underground either had for sale or has for sale. I just, those things are, I don't know what it is about those in particular that, that piqued my interest, but I like them. So yeah, I was going to, what happened? So something bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ones that underground had were slightly lighter. Wrongly. <laughs> Facebook's <laughs> weird about that, man. Like you go right and it takes you left. Uh, but I mean, you, so you, I mean, you're known for like the old world stuff, but you know, I'm a big Baird's rat guy as I'm sure everyone knows. Cause they're like all I talk about anymore. Um, have you ever focused on anything like that and subox and like the, the Texas stuff? So I actually picked up some bears this past year. Yeah. Um, so I've always liked them. I had a pair of um, locality specific ones that I picked up. Oh man. I want to say like eight or 10 years ago. And then I moved and I ended up getting rid of them just because they weren't a, a main focus mm-hmm. and I couldn't find them anymore. I mean, you look and try to find bears or, you know, any of that stuff anymore. I mean, even subox are pretty female, hard to find. Female subox are like impossible to get hold of right now. Yeah. And, and to be honest, I, again, I think it goes back to the fact that people are looking for a number of these animals that we don't see anymore, but were commonly produced at one point in time. Yeah, um, we've, we've talked about that kind of that situation a lot, you know, on previous episodes and stuff. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you go to any show anymore or even every now and then I'll pop up on Fauna Classifieds or King Snake or nowadays like Morph Market and you still don't see a lot of that stuff anymore. Um, I mean, I still keep Texas rats. Um, I have corn snakes, you know, and um, Clint Bartley and I, we've been working with a number of different uh, black rat snake morphs too as well. Um, but no, I, the bears are cool. Um, I mean, it's so interesting to actually see kind of that sexual like, well, dimorphism 
ontogenetic changes mm-hmm. sure um because it, it's such an underappreciated animal most definitely yeah so you know i i'd love to see more people work with them um i think that's that's officially literally half my collection is nothing but bears at this point oh really what yeah. do you got over there uh i got a pair of loma altas from dan parker um, okay i got a male hypo uh or albino rather um I got a pair of the Mexican variety. I have an adult pair that were sold to me as the Mexican variety. They kind of fit the bill. There's, I think there's, there's definitely some in there if they're not hundred um, percent. I've got another mystery pair. That's that clearly has some of the Mexican influences them as well. Um, you know, without any sort of information on them, I have no way of knowing for sure if they're full blooded, you know, um, That's something actually like we talked about that, I think last week too. And I th- it was when Rob was, uh, he dipped out for a minute, but um, like the, the sort of the short snout syndrome sort of thing that we were talking about. I noticed with, with some of the, the Mexican ones that I have, and I talked to Troy Hibbets about it, uh, but he, he, I noticed that like my Texas beards, they have that traditional sort of longer face. Uh, and then I noticed with, at least one pair of my Mexicans, it's a much shorter, shorter rounded sort of look to it. And so that was one thing I was actually wanting to pick your brain about too, and see if you noticed that with anything, you know, colubrid wise, because Troy Hibbets uh, told me it was, it was typically seen in, in animals that were underfed as babies. So this is kind of like an interesting topic because I've kind of gone on a big tangent too, looking like for the Mexican stuff. And I went through and I found at one point in time a trail on king snake, which I really wish like some of those forums would have been kept open, like to yeah. continue all those conversations forward and forward. But at some point, someone actually posted pictures of hybrid Texas rat snakes and bears too. And they were saying that some of that might actually be naturally occurring too. Mm-hmm. And there might be some interspecific, um, you know, crossbreeding between those rat snakes too as well. So uh, um, Baird's in Texas integrate essentially. Which we had talked about last week yeah. as well. And yeah. see, and that's what's weird. Related to that snout too. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I noticed like that one pair in particular that I, that it's really evident on. I noticed their, their scales are, they feel more keeled than my other Baird's, but I got them as, as hatchlings and they look, like a bear's hatchling like they didn't look any different and so it's just it's kind of strange and i guess that's that's sort of the the game you play when you buy undocumented animals you know from a from a show but i don't know it's just been interesting to see them change and you know they're the only that pair in particular is the only ones that really have that going on with the the short the short face well one thing that i've noticed with um black rat snakes especially too is when housing them in a rack system black rats are so active especially as hatchlings that i think part of what you're actually seeing is the animal pushing so much mm-hmm. on the actual tubs and actually causing that front snout to actually stunting. yeah and actually pushing against it um which as a hatchling i mean could have not necessarily an underfed response, but because of the way that the 
calcium and cartilage is actually developing could actually manipulate the way that mandible is actually developing. Very similar to like say a child that has bad posture later in life gets some kind of spinal issue or bad muscle oh, development. Just... Yeah. Well, and, Too many books you know, in their book bag. Yeah, ex exactly. That's why they have iPads now, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what's a textbook? What's that? Yeah. But, um, you know, it. one of the things that's so weird, too, and something that no one really ever wants to talk about, especially with snakes, is the use of UVB, calcium, vitamins. We neglect a lot of that conversation and only talk about that when we're talking about lizards, turtles, mm -hmm. um, not even so much with frogs. But, you know, uh, Stan Grumbeck and I, we've had this conversation a lot with Persian rat snakes um, because pides have been, you know, the main animal everyone wants to look for is pied Persian rat snakes, you know, and realistically, they're not like a traditional pied. They have some white on them. They look a little bit different. But over the years of just breeding pieds to pieds and things of that nature, um, a lot of people don't want to talk about it, but as those animals sexually mature and become adults, they actually develop um, kinking throughout their whole back, almost like mm -hmm. iguanas that don't have proper UVB or calcium. So over the past eight years, Stan and I have been holding back a lot of Persian rat snakes and messing around with raising animals from hatchlings to adults in cages with UVB, supplementing with calcium gluconate, uh, supplementing with multivitamins, just to try to see if anything really kind of um, is related just to husbandry. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting you bring that up too, because um, the only, like one of the only species that I really read anything about supplementing, you know, females in particular, is Baird's like I, there's there was a reptiles article back in like 2000 maybe 2009 on Baird's and they mentioned putting you know calcium gluconate in the water uh which to me seemed kind of odd because I was like if you're not putting a whole lot in there I would assume it would break down very quickly in the water and you kind of like it would be almost pointless um but they talked about supplementing uh giving them extra calcium going into the breeding season and stuff like that. But I never really understood why Baird's in particular, that seemed to be an issue. Um, and why we wouldn't be doing that with other stuff as well. But, you know, I think the whole UVB thing too, you know, it's one of those things that uh, I know we've talked to Rob about before, but, you know, it was written off years ago of, you know, they have a complete diet, so we don't need to give them those things. And everyone just kind of rolled with it and that became the norm. Right. <clears throat> Well, and um, so I actually started messing around with uh, calcium gluconate uh, more specifically when I was working with some hognose just as like mm -hmm. a side project and I would always get soft eggs. So, I, and like started talking to people, I ended up talking with Dick Bartlett about it. And um, for those that don't know Dick Bartlett, you definitely got Google him because he's created like a ton of- You probably have one of his books on your shelf. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but Dick actually said when they actually first got diamond pythons in the hobby, he said that they experienced the same thing with soft eggs. And apparently to resolve that, he started messing around with calcium gluconate because like they had chickens and stuff like that. And soft egg syndrome is something that's common in chickens. 
And to resolve it, you actually use um, oyster chips or glucanate, yeah. and it resolved a lot of the calcium issues, which, you know, when you start talking about diet, I mean, most of the rodents that we get are raised indoors, which don't have access to UVB. They mm -hmm. don't have access to realistically a complete diet, right? They're fed a lab block. Um, so bringing in a lot of that stuff, I mean, you, you could actually see some of those changes. Um, I forget, uh, Frank Reitz, right? He used to breed his rodents outside for monitors. And that was like his big thing was with calcium and vitamins and everything like that. Hmm. Bigger picture. Yeah. And I, well, I mean, with like with the, the gluconate, like what have, what have you done with, it? I mean, do you put it, are you just adding it to water? Are you injecting it in a, in a food or like, that's yeah, kind of my so, thing is like, if it, if you put it in water, wouldn't it just disintegrate and break down and essentially be you know more or less useless or less effective? Yeah. So I actually inject it straight into the rodents. Okay. Um, I'll actually fill up a syringe and go through and just inject rodents and then go through cages and feed everything, mm -hmm. which is a little bit meticulous. And I'm working on something else right now, <laughs> uh, but, but it, it, I've had the best seasons whenever I've done vitamins and calcium. Um, I've even messed around with some like the nutrobacteria, especially taking snakes out of cooling just to get their gut loads back up to normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that's that's something Harlan uh, Harlan Wall's done a lot is, you know, with chondro, like imported chondros, he'll give them, you know, like a probiotic or something if they've if they're kind of struggling to sort of reintroduce that that flora and stuff. Be cautious, given that extra calcium to Orthriophis and uh, probably Truganis too, right? Those eggs are already hard enough. Remember when Toby Brock was doing that and then he couldn't, the Orthriophis wouldn't hatch because they couldn't break out of the darn things? That's what I noticed with the Boiga eggs, man. Wow. Like those Boiga eggs are ridiculously thick shelled. Yeah, he had to start cutting them, figure out the date and really try and cut them early, and which you can do anyway. I mean, as long as you know what you're doing and you cut above the layer it's okay but that was pretty funny and that was what a decade ago that's crazy well i mean it's even like patias man those eggs are super hard um but you you've got to wonder where some of these animals are actually laying the eggs to as well right um you know i i still don't think we know enough natural history wise about where some of those snakes are actually laying them because it may actually serve an advantage for having that hard shell Cause that's, that's what I thought when I was cutting Boiga eggs, that first clutch was like, what on earth would require you to have an egg this, like this hard to get into and out of for that? You know, it's just, it's like, if that snake loses that egg tooth, that's screwed. Like it ain't getting out. It's not happening. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It just goes back to like thinking about how some of this stuff actually lays in the wild. And there was that, I can't remember who posted it in the magazine page, but the monitor in Australia that does like condos underground. And yeah. like, that's crazy. Cause you think about having how it's gotta be semi humid and have, have a good media of, of sand and clay and dirt or whatever to hold the moisture, but the not right be temperatures, the yeah. right temperature. Yeah. And that thing is like eight or nine feet underground in different condos. I mean, obviously that's a lizard snakes are a little different, but still that's, it's, it's incredible that we assume that if we just, throw it on some vermiculite and 
feed it mice, we're good to go, you know? Well, and that's always been a hard problem with uh, Mullendorfi eggs, too. A lot of people can get to the point of getting eggs, but can't hatch them. Really? Uh, so I, I don't do anything different. Like, I just put them on uh, perlite, same thing as everything else. But I think a lot of people mess around with humidity too much, keep them too sure. moist, mm-hmm. round the egg, don't have good airflow. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of people spend a lot of money on incubators, real high-end ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I I still use chicken incubators here. <laughs> Hubbabaters. <laughs> yeah, I think I have like 20 Hubbabaters in a room when it comes to breeding season, and each one of them holds four clutches. Wow. It's it funny, you, you bring up those Mullendorfi and like I hear people over the years talk about how they got everything was great and then during incubation some went wrong. It was either too hot or it was too cold or it was too dry and it's people overthinking it, you know, yeah, it's, 100%. People, it's, it's, it's all in their head and like instead of sticking to the quote unquote recipe, like not to say there is a recipe, but you know what I mean? Instead of taking the advice, they start to do runarounds in their mind and they're like, oh man, even though the experts told me I should do this. What if I just do this? Th- this sounds like it would work. And then they ruin it, you know? Well, like, so I, I get a ton of messages like every week just on random stuff. Some stuff it's like, has anyone even just used Google and just did it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I had a couple of messages like this past year about Mullendorfi eggs. And someone messaged me and was like, hey, I, like, I think this egg's going bad on the bottom. Like, I don't think the animal can hatch out of it. And I'm like, well, they hatch out the polar ends. So don't even worry about the bottom. Yeah, that's not the end. They're yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, they were like, should I cut it? Should I do this? Yeah, just roll it over completely on the other side. That'll yeah. work. Yeah. And then it can hatch out the right side. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, you know. They have an extra month or five weeks to worry about it or intervene and screw it up, right? Well, and this is like at day 50, and they take like 120 days to hatch. Mm -hmm. So if you start like screwing around with stuff like that, I mean, nature has to take its course, right? It's like Jurassic Park. Yep. But yeah, too many people overthink it. Um, You know, in my personal experience, and I'm sure you guys are probably the same too, is I'd rather have the um, incubation media actually drier than too moist because you can mm-hmm. always add like a paper towel, uh, sphagnum moss, anything. But even, if just, it's, even just a shot glass of water, you know? Yeah. 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 It's I kind think, of a one way street. Like it's easier to, to add to it than to take away. Yeah. You know, to adjust going up rather than going, you know going down or I guess is the, I don't know. And I'll tell you, I've seen a lot of people with some of the more common mm-hmm. pet stuff, whether it be beardies or whatever, you know, there's, there's, a, there's too much moisture in there, but it's not too much that it's going to ruin the eggs. However, the amount of condensation on the lid of the vessel is so, it's so clustered that the minute they open the door to the incubator, it rains on those eggs. And I've seen <laughs> a lot of people have a lot of mold problems and bad eggs from just the over amount of condensation and they're going in there looking and they're going in there looking and they're going in there looking and it just rolls and drips and yeah I've, I've seen a lot of people do like overthink it you know they check it well and like talking about like moisture and condensation 
like a lot of people don't even think about if they're keeping animals in racks, like you need airflow through yeah. that. Um, cause people will get respiratory infections and it's not a respiratory infection. It's cause the animal can't breathe. And it's like in a sauna, like, oh. right. I mean, that's a big impact of the moisture on eggs, egg surfaces too, right? It's just that it impairs respiration. You don't right. get air exchange in the same way if it, the shell is wet. Yeah. I've also seen it with um, a, a lot of terrestrial stuff that's very, you know, stationary ambush type snakes where, you know, they, they defecate or they, you know, they pee and that ammonia, that urate gases are in the air and they get respiratory illness because the gases are just lingering and they're just breathing in, you know, pee vapor for, for an extended period of time because there's no ventilation. You've never bred rodents then. Whew. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't breed rodents. That's all, Justin. All, Justin. I don't have that issue. Like my yeah. the the, the yeah, I mean, they're granted, in a barn outside, and they're there's open enough top. space to where things can like yeah, there's there's enough airflow to keep that from being the case. But like you walk into the the barn where the mice are, and you don't smell mice. I mean, not like in the the hitch in the face, like holy crap, you know. Right. Right. Dions have very acritic urates for what it's worth. That's kind of the one bugaboo with them to me. A critic, how? Exactly what them. Phil's talking about. Like, you yeah. better keep those things clean, man, because they, oh, for yeah. reason, when, when they go, if it's in a in a rack, it'll actually, it will, like, you get almost caustic burning and stuff. Yeah, where it's like, <laughs> you gotta keep dry and clean, or it's, it can go, that's their one thing to me. Yeah, I mean, so, Dion's like, in my opinion, for some of like the urates and feces and stuff like that, depending on what you're feeding them, they can be like crebos a little bit. I mean, they can be a little bit messy. Um, but their temperament, their small size, I mean, kind of balances. I mean, we've seen such an influx on crebos lately. I can't believe how many people are searching for Drymacon and stuff like that. Yeah, because it's it's trending, and they see all these people that have these animals that take these big majestic pictures. It's a beautiful specimen. The 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 you know ferocity of their feeding response is crazy, but they're not seeing that it took them thirty minutes to get that photo because the thing has been whipping around and pissing on them and just you know gaping. They got that picture when it was exhausted. Exactly. They yeah. tired that animal out for 25 30 minutes and then finally they got their big majestic yellowtail. You know, or the fact that they get this big majestic yellowtail fresh out of Guyana and you know 4 or 5 weeks later the stress is there because they're manhandling the critter and the parasites start to take effect and now the animal dies. And, the, yeah. and people, people are going to learn that the hard way. I hate to say it, but that, that's what's going to happen. And you're going to see a lot of people all of a sudden selling their dries real cheap because they're like, I can't take the urates anymore. I can't take the constant defecation. Or they're going to say, I've had this thing six months. It's crashing. What do I do? Help me. And that's yeah, still, it's it's loud loud. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the picture is enough. You just put them in the fridge for 20 minutes. No worries. <laughs> I kid, I kid. Yeah. What are you talking about? That's how I get such good pictures right now. It's just like everything's in cooling. It's like <laughs> Yep. It just sits there. <laughs> it, Nip, Nipper Nipper yelled at me the other day. Well, in, in text, I could I could hear his tone as I read his words on Facebook. And uh he said, Why are those cobras in deli cups? 
I said, because I was cleaning their enclosure and I, that's where I put them. They don't have a small enough container, so I just put them in a deli cup. He's like, okay, I just want to make sure you're not stressing them out. I was like, no, I'm not. I'm just cleaning their enclosure because he knows I'm like a helicopter mom, you know. But that's it, you know. And you know, it's, it's good for guys like us because not to sound greedy, but in the next year to five years, we're going to get a bunch of nice looking dries for pretty cheap. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have a pair of Rubidis from Stan, and I mean, those things crap on the ceiling of the tub, the wall of the tub, any little crevice across the side of the tub. <laughs> it's the cleaning part that takes the time. The awesome animals, mm -hmm. uh, Rubidis, I don't know what anyone else's experiences are on them, but mine handle great. They never bite. Yeah. Um, Do you I, have a lot of red flecking that comes up the sides, like towards the first uh, board? No, no, mine are pretty much. They looked as if they were blue as babies, and have really kind of turned almost like jet black now as they've okay. matured. Um, but yeah, I, what is it? It's the Guerrero localities. What everyone's calling these red ones? Is that what yeah. yeah, yeah? From what I've gathered, is it's it's basically a, in my opinion, because I'm no expert. In my opinion, it's a long line integrate. So essentially a group of animals that, you know, happen to breed with Texans or low locality Texans to the point where the Texan blood is in there to bleed that color, you know, north, so to speak, but it's still Mexican in its environment, in its habits, in its body structure, you know, because they're, they're a lot leaner than some of the, than like the Texans and, and like the, the yellowtails are way, they're more leaner in my opinion. I don't know what yours look like, but like those ones, I think they're long line integrate. I think hmm. it's, it's something that happened in the wild a long time ago, and we haven't really put a pin in genetically what's going on. So we're going to start calling them like Tex-Mex Drymacons? I mean, that'd be a <laughs> hell of a name. I'm, I'm for it. I'm all for it. <clears throat> and someone's going to get on here and be like, Phil doesn't know anything about Drymacon, which is fine. But in, from my observation, because there's also been a handful that were legitimately imported from Mexico through one mean or another, and they come in and they're basically like, this is a Texas indigo. And it's like, no, it's not. Yeah, Dude. I saw Tom Miller had imported a number of them this past year, of course, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and his were all that red. But, yeah, I mean, it's definitely interesting. I mean, it could it could be integrates. It could be an interspecific population, potentially. Right. Um, yeah. You know, that's kind of like the hard part when you start talking about locality animals is really is there just like one specific area and then is there a mountain rate region like enclosing that area that sure. you can't breed with anyone else or what's going sure. on we had a whole conversation about that last week and i don't know about you but i'm of the opinion that in many cases it gets taken way too seriously <laughs> yes well anytime you start talking about locality i mean from my perspective, the only reason locality comes to be important is like when we started talking about like the porphyracea with Kevin Messenger, um, mm -hmm. because now we can actually look at like subspecies, subspecies, subspecies and try to figure out, is it true or is it something else going on? Kind of yeah. Thing. Yeah. But now it's too many people take the locality stuff too far, I would say. Um, and from my perspective as lately in the hobby, and this isn't to show anything negative, but like 
I don't understand how some people all of a sudden after breeding animals for like six, seven years, never mentioning locality. Now, all of a sudden they have locality animals. Weird. Crazy, right? Yeah. Well, it's like, did I ever tell you guys that story about the guy in San Diego with the California King snakes? No. Yeah, I, I remember I it. All right. So essentially, it was on the this, Texas Stogies episode, I think. Okay. So, so essentially, I'll, I'll give us a, a quick synopsis. A guy who likes cow kings, who lives in California, um, I don't know what the permit system is out there or whatever, but he's got cow kings legitimately. And he goes to a flea market and he sees cow kings that are what you'd expect to be black, white, black, white, black, white, but they're green instead of white. So he's like, where do these come from? And the guy says, oh, it's, you know, my cousin. He goes out to the mountains and he found this small pocket of them. And it's a very, very rare color morph and blah, blah, blah. So he buys them all and he spends hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars on these black and green snakes only to have them all shed like two months later and be white. So he goes back to the flea market, yells at the guy, goes, oh, that's my cousin. He dips them in green food coloring. <laughs> and it's like, there's your locality specifics, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's well, what we'll it got you. <laughs> These are rid locality. Yeah, yeah right. What's yeah. the one species of um, king snakes that was it's only found in one little geographical island that there was like a long story about how there was only like three or four pairs here in the U.S. They were illegally collected and a North American species. Yeah, and I, like, I would assume it would like be a, one of the mountain species. I would think. Yeah, some kind yeah, of surely, surely Rob knows. Digging, digging your encyclopedia brain. Stone. It's like a coveted hobbyist, <laughs> like. No one has it, but everyone's looking for it. Um, well, I remember Nablaki were like a super hot ticket item for a while, and people were coming up with crazy stories of this is a specific Nablaki that's the the most Nablaki of all Nablaki. And it was like, okay, it's still you still bred it in Michigan, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, so, I'm trying to find the. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'll be fascinated to see what Matt pulls here. This this is yeah. crazy. So while you're looking that up, I got one point on the uh, physiology to go back to because I was just yeah. having this conversation. Um, fella was showing me some wild rhinos and was saying, hey, the heads look thinner. And to me, that's probably actually a, a response to eating more fish and uh, frogs, you know, amphibians mm -hmm. when they're young. Because I think the in terms of width, not narrow, not shortness of the, the snout, but in terms of width of the head, right? Some of that seems to be a response to the size of prey that they're eating. And so if in the wild, as uh, you know, the Tamdao studies and stuff, the Russian studies found that they are eating fish, fish are necessarily going to be a, a thinner packet than a rodent, right? A similarly sized rodent. And it is pretty universal that in terms of the physiology of wild rhinos, they seem to have thinner heads. And that's almost certainly a response to my mind, to eating thinner prey. It's not that, oh, this locality is somehow different or mm -hmm. anything like that. There was some suggestion that this, um, I know Matt's seen this, the the notion that this locality lacks the eye stripe and stuff. And I said, yeah, sure. I have some that have essentially no eye stripe, some that have thick eye stripe. And I admittedly, I don't have any, I've never had any that completely lack it, but in terms of like the tiniest little single hair with whips wisp you know beyond the eye and i'm like yeah maybe i don't know i've never been there i haven't seen it but now uh, so you think the peltis hereri oh yeah yeah yeah. that's just the not i like critter yeah yeah, yeah. Hmm. but like going back to what you were saying rob it, essentially we're going back to the whole little kid with the book bag full of textbooks 
you're saying that the the animals that we have in captivity are constantly opening their mouth wider essentially to consume a rodent type prey item and therefore that stretching the ligaments and stretching the ligaments and stretching ligaments and that they're going to develop a more broad head so to speak is that what you're getting at yeah, and I, I, that's yeah. actually been seen in the context of Boyd stuff, I believe. I think the Barkers had looked into kind of growth rates associated with feeding. If you fed the same mass of prey, but if you were feeding fewer large items versus many smaller items and that you're getting better growth, well, which is to say they were getting larger from consuming larger prey, even if the same mass of food was being consumed. And yeah. the, I don't know that they looked into the, the structure associated with that, whether the the gape itself was changing, but uh, certainly to me, that was kind of the thought is saying like, yeah, most right. of the wild rhinos I've seen have these thin heads, much thinner than what we see in captivity. And I, I am guess making an educated guess that that's the reason. Yeah, it makes sense. It does. Yeah. So here's, this is a, this picture is kind of a good example of what I was talking about. Like you just notice how it has that almost like mole king snake sort of shortness to it. You know, in comparison to something like that, where it's just more elongated. I mean, this is actually one of those animals in, in question. This is from the, the Baird's article. Um, like, this is one of that pair that has that shorter snout. And I guess you can kind of see it, like, the distance from the, the tip of the nose to the, to the eyes is just, it just seems shorter compared to, you know, my, my Texas varieties. And I don't know if it's a, yeah, there's another... I don't. I don't know. I don't. It's something I. I need to get a better picture of it. Yeah, I'm trying to find the weird Mexican ones that I had a picture of. That and were it sucks. Crosses. Yeah, it sucks because I love like that pair. Like this animal in particular has become one of the most colorful out of all I have. But I just I don't know exactly how how legit it is. Yeah, it could be pretty because it's a mutt. Well, and that's like when you started looking at, you know, some of the Texas rats, the black rats now, gray rats. Um, a lot of people have crossed them, you know. Um, it gets to be pretty challenging to even differentiate some of those, especially now after, you know, four or five generations of breeding them that way. Because, mm -hmm. um, I mean, you go back to the 90s, right, where people – we're selling albino Texas rats and we're probably doing pretty well with them. And then it fell off and people started crossbreeding them and stuff like that. And now we've got what we got. So we almost have to think about it merely just as like, well, some of those animals are hobby animals, you know, it's not necessarily a pure Texas or pure black or anything like that. Which sucks. Uh, yeah, it's it's <laughs> frustrating because like now I'm I'm hesitant to you know when that pair is of age I'm hesitant to do anything with them you know whether it's pair them together or pair them with something else because it's like I don't I'm not I'm for one intentionally making crosses that's not something I'm you know especially when it's something like a Texas to a bear it's like that's not something I'm terribly interested in doing. Um, well, with like porphyracea, but, it's so easy to tell like when people cross them, and then you just bring up the fact like, Hey, this is a cross. And people are like, no, 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 no. And it's like, okay. Coxide bands don't extend outside those dorsal stripes, but your animal. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, I mean, it's all right to do it. I mean, it's a hobby, but at least just be honest about it. Yeah. You know, people I mean, are I, hoping that you don't know, you know, people are hoping that you're unsavvy to it and you just see a pretty snake and a good price and say, oh, that's cool. I think I'd like that. Un unbeknownst to them, you are who you are, you know? Right. So. And the bummer of that, right, is once you get a decade or two or three down the track, which is kind of the case with a lot of the Mexican stuff that it's like, that's why there's so much value, at least in the same way as Alterna, much to Justin's chagrin, the, uh, with the Theride, right? That it's like, oh, you, you actually want them to be, it's kind of the normative color stuff, at least it, traceable normative color mm -hmm. stuff makes more sense and people are more interested in. If you actually get an aberrant animal that's sort of, there's actually some striped milk snake Theride, but it, uh, it's, you see that sort of thing and it, raises more questions you actually want them to look as textbook as possible you know generally speaking and have a okay this ties to x y and z because if that happened in 1985 and then was subsequently bred just to therai you know for the six generations forward you can't you couldn't tell so yeah, it's always yeah. presented right as like oh well i honestly represented him and it's like no nah, man you're yeah. you're doing what you're doing and the die is cast for 20 or 30 years from now well, it's just like uh, Ruth and I. I was just about to say. Like, yep. no one has pure Hondurans in the hobby. No, no one has pure Ruth and I either. Yeah. And if they yeah. do... If they Anybody have Ruth, Ruth and I, period? <clears throat> oh, oh, Rob's got them? Rob's got real Ruthans? Of course he does. That's awesome. Now, are they albino? Wrong Ruth and I, bro. Oh, okay. Okay. Touche. <laughs> but no, to your point, I think yeah, that makes a ton of sense, right? Especially what it was Bob Applegate, right? That was talking about it in the context of saying, oh, well, if they were, you know, three, ban three bands of red wide, then we called those Sinaloans and they were Nelsons if they were less than three and all this stuff, you know, from the same, from the same bag, from the same place. And that was just sort of the preconceived notion they had that tied to a single paper and was the best they could do at the time. But in terms of saying, oh, this is legit, right? What all those, the albino stuff, is it what the Amialco stuff? And that is most of what there is. But when you're talking about the Nelsons and Sinaloans, to me, that's way more convoluted even than the Ruth and I. Absolutely. Well, it's even I, like boa constrictors, <clears throat> like when they get them in from the farms and stuff, it's like everything's Central insane. American, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Let's separate this stuff by locality now. And yeah. I remember my, my late mentor had Hondurans that were six pushing seven foot, and he referred to them as uh, Lamprapeltus triangulum hondurensis polymorpha or polymorphic or whatever. It was some other old world name that nobody knew except for him because he was a weirdo. But his whole thing was that these were the largest of the tricolors, and you could always tell because they had a black bar across their the T of their face and a black bar that came all the way down their nose and went all the way around their chin, and they were mean as sin. And his his animals were psychotic. They thought they were cobras. And I'll never forget those animals. And he sold them to somebody for a crap load of money, but I've never seen anything like that ever again. And it makes me wonder if it was just a freak, you know, a bad birth and uh, abnormality, or if, if he was actually were, onto something, yeah. or if he was really onto something, right? Mm -hmm. Right, because I know he had a friend, I guess, in like the late 80s who brought them back in his luggage from Honduras. 
Polyzona. Was it? It was still a Honduran, but it was, I guess, a subspecies. It's Polyzona. Yeah. Is it Polyzona? I think so. Okay. Polyzona. Yeah, I've I've seen some people try to bring those back, um, but I don't even know legality anymore on any of that stuff. It's constantly changing in most countries. It's hard to keep up. I'm actually looking at Polyzona right now. That is. Is The look you're thinking of. That is not it at all. (laughs) <laughs> yep so this is really polymorphic i don't think it's polymorphic bro so <laughs> yeah right well i think he called it polymorpha i think it was i don't remember this was 15 years ago but but i remember it was a normal looking honduran with this black bard on its face and it was just gigantic like massive snake so i don't know who knows yeah, nowadays everyone just thinks all these snows and pearls and albinos yeah. are pure Hondurans. They don't realize how much other stuff is in there. Of course, of course. But we still remember them as a Honduran. Yeah. yeah. So what's what's up with those those lineatus, man? So that has been like a project that's long coming. Those things um, are so freaking cool. They're cool. Um, <laughs> they, yeah. uh, but <laughs> um, I mean that you figure what I've been doing those for now four years. Um, and you know, for anything like when you first start up off with a species, the reason why a lot of people don't have success with new species is they buy one pair, right? You're going to lose the mail or you're putting a lot of eggs in a, in one basket with that. Um, I spent close to like $20,000 on all the animals I ended up buying just to try to get a group together. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I would bring those animals straight to my vet and the vet was like, no, you're putting this animal down. You're putting this animal down. And this is like straight out of the box, go to FedEx, bring the box there. Um, and just for, just for the people that aren't on the same wavelength right now, which lineatus are we talking about? So, the red devils. Uh, red, black, striped snakes. Real original yes. name, right? right. Uh, Very original. <laughs> but I, I think what the curiosity really with them is just the fact that they hatch out with a white hat. Right. Oh, yeah. And orange body, black stripes. Um, they don't get very large. You know, you're looking at three, three and a half feet for an adult. Um, there is some sexual dimorphism between males and females of those, but they hadn't been imported a number of times. And part of that in conversations with uh, Mike, who used to be at Outback and is now um Working he with had, he had one for sale recently. Yeah, Alpac had a pair. Um, it, but to be honest with you, you have one pair again, it's like you're putting all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. Um, I know Fascination had some a while back too. Yeah, so Fascination bought or brought in, I think, a pair, and that pair ended up getting sold to a gentleman in Texas, and those animals died within like three months. And that gentleman ended up, um, he called me. I ended up selling him a pair of captive borns and captive borns are doing 
awesome for him. Cool. Um, and it was one of those conversations where he told me everything he went through with him. And I was like, dude, these are like animals that like you've done your research. Like I'm, I'm kind of almost honored that you're reaching out to me about this stuff. Cause that's yeah. really where those animals belong. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, he even brought those animals to the zoo for their veterinary care program. And they told him, well, they have parasites, but don't treat them. And my, so I, I approach it a little bit differently. Like if the animal feeds, you want to treat the prey item sure, and then naturally let it go. That way, if the animal doesn't feed, it's probably heavily parasitized and you want to treat that animal and just basically shotgun them to sure. clear out whatever's in there. But everyone looks at intestinal parasites. No one looks at um, lung parasites. And what ended up coming about of that, and the reason why I put down a number of those animals was they actually had a lung fluke that wasn't treatable by any antibiotic in the hobby as it did. So really? there's actually a researcher who's actually looking at that parasitism and looking at ways of actually treating those parasites, because obviously it's probably in other African species as wild caught. Sure. But, you know, you're going to spend, what, two grand on a pair, and now you've got a parasite that you can't even treat. Right, right. But, you know, your average person's like, well, I can buy the wild caught cheaper. Yeah. But they don't realize how much money you spend in veterinary care to try you to might as well it. have bought the captive bread. It's, it's, it's the classic Biok argument, you know? Yep. Yeah. Now, now, not to get all weird about localities, but do you know exactly like what locality yours are or no? So I have some information pertaining to it. I'd have to go back and actually look. Um, again, it was all provided, you know, from the exporter. But part of the um, reasoning and conversation that they've actually been collected more was some of those animals are the red and black specifically were being collected by um, monkey and bird catchers. So you can't really export legally birds or monkeys anymore out of Africa. Yeah. So these people found, you know, these beautiful looking snakes, started catching them, realizing they could make money off of them and selling them. And my like theory or hypothesis about that white head is if those animals are found by bird or monkey feces, uh, birds especially heavily yeah. you know fruit feces so the feces is going to also have some white urates down there too as well so it's just natural camouflage sure. do you feel that like for example do you feel it was a, a a case of the animal is quote unquote native to its exporting country but it's actually not like i know there's a lot of uh, I don't want to say melanistic, but a lot of black boadon that came out of Liberia or came out of Benin, but black boadon are not native to Benin, they're native to Liberia, and somehow they managed to slither across the border and be exported legitimately. So do right. you think it's a, a case similar to that where, you know, they're in the the, the bird guys are in the jungle, they don't even know what side of the street they're on, so to speak, and something like that happens? Um, you know, looking at like the natural range of where those red and blacks are. Right. They do occur in the same areas where, you know, like Mahila cross eye. And I, I prefer Mahila over Lima Formosa and all that stuff or getting it to the office and stuff like that. Um, but they occur in the same range, you know. So, you know, would they cross borders? 
I don't think so. But again, like you know, you're you're still you're still relying on some guy that's out there, sure. hunting, right. saying, you know, to support his family realistically. Yeah. Um, and all those animals are going to the market. And the scary part, so like I, I enjoy interacting with, you know, and hearing some of the stories from some of these importers and, and I bet you they have a lot too. I'd be interested. Yeah. Um, or even like like Facebook is so amazing in in my opinion, because like we look up like uh different Facebook groups or you know, even Instagram like snakes of um Thailand or yeah, stuff like that. Seeing people posting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um but even like these snake catchers, I mean, part of the reason why half these wild caught things end up in such poor shape is they catch that snake. They know nothing about the animal. They're hanging that snake in a bag off a tree waiting for someone to come and buy it. Yeah. No water, no food. So by the time you get it, that thing's toast. Yeah. yeah. Um, or, or it's a classic example of like a lot of the guys in the island, you know, certain islands in Southeast Asia, you know, the snake's a thousand dollars US wholesale, not because it's rare, but because it takes the catcher, you know, three, four days to get into the jungle to get it and then three, four days back. So even if the animal makes it to captivity in pristine order, it still was living in some kind of containment, no food, no water, no sunlight, whatever, for three, four days while, you know, the guy, you know, paddled his canoe up the river. Right. So, well, and, you know, like, all right, so like animals, can they live with parasites? Yes. And be completely fine. Right, right. Right. But if those animals are in that tiny little enclosure, shitting themselves constantly, just worm after worm after worm after worm ingesting, you know, they're just going to keep reinfesting themselves. Um, where, you know, in the wild, those animals defecate, move on and, you know they're gone and they're still living. But that's part of the, also the, the tricky part of establishing wild caught animals too, is you got to be on top of that stuff, like nonstop. Yeah. Extra observant. Yeah. And how, I mean, how is, Oh, go ahead. No, oh, no. I was going to say that's part of the reason why I think some people suffer with uh file snakes even too. That's what I was about to ask you was yeah. like, what's your experience with file snakes been like in the compared to the, you know, those lineatus. Yeah. <clears throat> um, Files, wild caught wise, are 50 50. Um, if you get them fresh, like straight off, straight out of the box from the importer, yep. um, treat them properly. Um, with file snakes, they're notorious for lung flukes. Um, not so much intestinal worms, but they do get lung worms um, and flukes too, as well. But if they're treated properly, they do great. Um, they establish well on rodents. Um, in, in my opinion, they're not necessarily a snake eater. I think they're actually just a um, resourceful eater. Opportunistic. Yeah, yeah. opportunistic. Um, where they're going to eat anything that goes in their mouth. You know, they, they have such a high feeding response. Um, they're cool animals. They handle well. They never bite that's one of the cool parts about them is they're so unique to handle too but there's no biting they do musk solid jet black musk (laughs) and it's awful to get off your hands rob it reminds me of mullendorfi musk (laughs) they're like a squid yep 
That's awesome. I don't know. It's just—it's interesting because I was at the Atlanta show at the beginning of the month, um, last month, and there was probably more file snakes than I've seen in a long time yeah. on a lot of those tables, and for very cheap. You know, yeah. it's just one of those things. Where it was like, yeah, you probably got a well, good chance I, I it's not it. going to do well. Right. I mean, I get a ton of messages on those, or I get a ton of messages of how do I get these file snakes to breed. Oh yeah. What'd you get them last week? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, are yours like subset? Like I don't want to say sub-Saharan, but are yours like Southern Africa, or you have more West Coast stuff? So I have both uh, Cape files okay. and cross eye. So cross eye are the Western forest files that are the more right. common ones, and then the Capes are the ones that are more purple hue with a white dorsal stripe down the back. Right. Um, so we, we don't see many of the capes anymore because those were primarily exported, I want to say, from Tanzania. Yeah. Um, and since they've been closed for export, probably now for like 10, 15 years, I would say. Yeah, about that. Because, yeah. I mean, that's where like everyone, like I'm a big fan of uh, beak snakes too as well. But yeah. not the ones that come from um, Ghana. I like the ones from Tanzania, the ones that are jet red animals. Yeah, rubies. Yep, you'll never see them again, though. Yeah. Well, Tanzania needs to get their chameleon situation under control. That's what the problem is. Yeah. You didn't hear about that? No. So the rumor is that the reason why Tanzania shut down the last time is because the individual who literally stamped the export documents of approval uh, had no idea what they were doing, wasn't an animal person, had no training, just knew, okay, you're only allowed so many chameleons. You're only allowed so many snakes, whatever. And he basically let the entire group, the entire population of an endangered species of chameleon, let it be exported. No. And the government was like, oh, my God, what did you just do? You just killed the species in the wild. And they said, until we can get our stuff straightened out, we're going to shut down export. So that's that's the rumor that I heard from several different individuals who do export, did export a lot of stuff out of Tanzania. Um, I don't know how true it is, but but like I know for a fact I've had uh, files from Benin that I got only eating uh, frozen thawed chicks. That's all they would eat. And I got them to breed and I got them to lay eggs and then they both died and all the eggs died. Yeah, you, you posted those pictures. I remember. Yeah. yeah. Tragic. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also so. Like Mike, when he was at Outback, whenever there was something weird there, he would shoot me a line and say, hey, do you know what this is? Or are you interested in this? And like one time he had um, African garter snakes, which are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And I was like, how did this get cleared? There's, um, only, there's only one other snake in Central Africa that gets me as excited as that. And that's Super Ciliaris. Those are cool. I've never seen them in person, and that's on my list. Yeah. I mean, there's some awesome stuff. Um, I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever cleared a shipment through Fish and Wildlife at the airport, but I, I would say half the people don't even know what they even are looking at. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I like it when they look at the wooden, they look at the Sharpie marker that's written on the wooden, the top of the wooden crate, and they go, okay, there's, you know, 10 of these and four of those. And then they, they look at it and they pull out their notes and they go, yeah, we don't have to open it. 
Because <laughs> yeah. they, they know what's in there, and they're like, "Yeah, I'm not, I'm not taking a risk. It's, a, it's something get out of the bag. It's not gonna happen." Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean that's the truth. Um, I mean there, yeah, it's just you, you would imagine that certain people would be working in some of those uh, you, department agencies. Yes, yes, and just going back to what you were saying about getting the files, quote unquote, fresh out of the box. I honestly attribute my minor success with them to that because I physically took the crowbar and opened that crate and pulled out the, the individual animals that I wanted. And I think that was my, my minute amount of success I had. I attribute to honestly that being it because there was no time for them to be in a pet shop. There was no time for them to be long-term at the wholesaler waiting to be distributed. I literally got them out of the bag, got them hydrated, took them home and then it worked. Well, well and that's the trick too. I mean, right. Yeah. Like, if animals are healthy feeding and established animals, they will breed. Right. Um, that's why, like, sometimes when I get these conversations of like, well, how do I get this to breed? Blah blah. It's like, are they healthy? Yeah. Let's let re rewind. Let's let's <laughs> yeah. go back a little, a few yeah. steps. Yeah. Um, you know, everything's not a corn snake. Everything's not a ball python. Right. It, it kind of comes back to that. Um, I mean, it's awesome to see people are interested in a lot of this um, newer, well, not really newer, but, you know, commonly imported, I would say, sure. species that eventually they're going to disappear from the, yeah. you know, that yeah. importation. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's almost, I don't want, it's not necessarily getting out of hand, but it's just kind of comical because, I mean, just in the Ganyasoma group the other day, someone posted like a picture of a, it was either a, a maybe a yearling, oxy or a yearling jansen and they were like anybody have any females because i'm i want to breed it when it gets of age and it's like a you just got it and then it's like b you still got a couple you got some time dude yeah like yeah. it's just that's and we've i know we've we've talked about that to death previous episodes and stuff too is just you know the the weird compulse uh you know compulsory mindset of of feeling the need to breed and i mean i i'm even guilty of it you know, I see some stuff and it's like, if you don't have a pair of it, why do you have it? You know, it's, it's, this yeah. odd flip. I, I mean, I can say this is that this past year or two has been the first time in my life that I've literally thought to myself, I want to breed these species, not, oh, I got a pair. If it happens, it happens. No, an intentional, I hate to use the word that Justin hates project, but literally projects on certain species to get stuff to breed because 10, 15, 20 years ago, I looked at I looked at the personal breeder as someone who just wanted to make a buck and really didn't care about the animals. And I know that that's not the case, but that's just how I viewed a lot of individuals. And I've my my theory on that has obviously evolved, but now I'm seeing the trend more of you're not cool, you're not in unless you breed it, which is which is really sad. So um, big grand scheme picture for me, the reason now why I've worked with so many different species of Alafe is, and I, I haven't told this to a lot of people, um, only a few people. I don't even think Rob knows this, but before I die, I want to breed every species of Alafe in captivity. That's, that's my awesome. See, that's cool. That's just like that's when awesome. Burke had the whole, like, I want every species of Python in the world. You know, it's yeah. like, that's, that's, that's neat, you know? Yeah. But with is that, that comes a lot of time and, you know, understanding the animal, the research, mm -hmm. all of that. Um, yeah. I mean, even some of like my one-off stuff, 
I mean, part of the reason why I picked up uh, the file snakes was I always had an interest in them. They were just so cool, right? Such a prehistoric looking animal, but I only ever found them as wild caught. So I was mm-hmm. like, why does no one work with these? Why is no one, you know, trying to establish them in captivity? So I, I picked up a whole bunch of them and, you know, and away we went kind of deal. And mm-hmm. then... I don't know about you, but, but part of that for me is just like sort of the, like the challenge of it is like a big chunk of the sort of the enjoyment of it is like, can I crack the code on these? No one else seems to really want to take the time to do it. You know, is that like, I'm willing to to put in the time and effort into trying to figure these out, you know, where. And like, not to, not to take the words out of your mouth, but like, I wouldn't say crack the code. It's more along the lines of at least this is how I feel thinking about what Justin's saying. It's almost like I want to keep these animals so good in captivity and give them the best life possible for my enjoyment and theirs that they can breed and be successful in their life. Yeah. And like focusing on the actual naturalisticness of it, the husbandry aspect, the ecology of it, like that is, I think, what drives guys like us. And, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. No, I mean, no, it's, I mean it, yep, go ahead, man. No, I mean, I mean, a big part of the reason why I even keep corn snakes is, I mean, I give away a bunch of those to first time keepers. Um, if they can actually, you know, understand and talk to me about how to properly care. I mean, I've given a bunch to, you know, people that are in local herb groups and stuff like that, that wanted an animal. Um, they learned about corn snakes and I was like, you spend the money on the cage, the setup, here's the animal. Mm-hmm. And like seeing pictures like sent to you over like the years of like holding animals and stuff. That's super rewarding. Yeah. I mean, that's the big part of the picture because that's the future of our hobby. Right. Yeah, totally. You know what? It's funny. You guys brought up like your dream of having bred every, uh, you know, rat snake and talking about Burke having every single Python. And I had a Burke moment when I was like 26 or 27. I had a pretty good and I'll say collection of burkening. I had a bur- I had a burkening. Um, that's <laughs> that's totally going to be a thing now. The burkening. I had a, a burkening. Um, when I was like twenty six or twenty seven, I had a pretty good collection of nausea, and it was just individual animals, and most of them were males because I wasn't going to breed them. I just wanted to have. And at the time, I think there was only at the time there was only twenty two species. Now I think there's like twenty six or twenty eight or whatever. But I was like, I've got fifteen or sixteen independent species of nausea. I want to get as many as I can. And it's like, okay, well, you're not going to get Arabica because you're poor. You're not going to get, <laughs> you're not going to get Sagittifera because India won't let that shit fly out, you know? So like certain things I had to cross off the list. And then it, it hit me one day. I have a room full of feces and it, it just wasn't fun. And I was like, this is a great idea, but I'm not going to do that. I can't do it because it's, it's too much poo for, for that little amount of animals. <laughs> Right. The downside of any of the collectioning, right, is that there's stuff that you like more than other stuff. And then you're kind of placing your favor, whether it's manifesting in the care or not, you're favoring one thing over another because because they fit differently. The whole we hear all the time doing the podcast stuff, Matt, that like, oh, X, Y or Z, no one care. And it's like, yeah, there's 
there's a reason that different people care about different things and some things are more universally applicable. And it's because, oh, Sawu Pythons actually kind of suck. I mean, they're awesome. <laughs> they also suck. Let's, let's just be honest. They're not. And that's anytime you were, oh, I'm going to keep all the Nefuris. I'm going to keep all the nausea. You know, whatever it is, it's like, all oh, jets. you're only doing that at some point with your mentality. And it'll, yours might be different from mine, but you're only going to be keeping all of them because of that set mentality. Yeah. And then Not it comes. You actually like them all. And then it also comes down to, like, for me, obviously, uh, uh, for those of you who don't know, I work in the firearms industry and I'm very much into history. And there was a particular group mm -hmm. of, I know, there was a particular group of <laughs> pistols from World War I uh, that I found fascinating because of the story of them and the history and everything. And I decided that I was going to basically get one of every variant. And then I got one of every variant. And it took me a couple of years to, to find them all in private collections, but I had everything and I thought to myself, yeah, the gun's cool, but it wasn't about the gun or the history. It was about the hunt of finding the chase. Yeah. You get to the, the top chase. of the mountain and it's like, then what? Right. Right. So, so it's almost like, and I wound up selling them all because I said, what am, what am I doing with this? Like, I, I don't shoot them. I don't play with them. I don't, you know what I mean? Like I have this beautiful collection, but what's the point at least with the animals i get to enjoy them and interact with them and everything else so i think a lot of the the having every species of nausea was almost like it was about the hunt of finding them or procuring the funds to acquire them or whatever but well and you know as like reptile keepers i feel mm -hmm. all of us have a similar mentality though where we're all collectors sure i mean that is the truth because yeah. like i collect books too um i collect reptile books and like huge collection of stuff here of like books and stuff like that. But um, I mean, even on Facebook, like people collect friends within the reptile industry and it's never <laughs> ended. Like, it's like, who is this request from? I, I've never even heard yeah. of this. Yeah. <laughs> I have some people's birthday pop up or something. I'm like, I've never seen you before. Like I've never even seen your name pop up on my feed. It's just, yeah. well, I think it's amazing too, is like, I've gotten messages from people saying, Hey, I saw that you keep this, you know, I just got this, you know, I was thinking about this, you know, do you have any tips or whatever? And like, okay, I can, I can work with that. You, you've messaged me. I I've interacted and Matt, you were saying how you get messages all the time and the craziest questions and the yeah. weirdest stuff. And I'm sure a lot get, of it, uh, it's what I happens get, when you keep all the cool stuff. Right. Well, exactly. I get but, two to 300 messages a week. On yeah. Just like, way, oh, more than me, way more yeah. than me. But here's my kicker is that those people took the time to message you, right? Right. I get friend requests by the bucket load and they don't say like, oh, hey, I met you at Bob's house last week at the barbecue. Like, it's not like that. It's just like, I want to be your friend, but I'm not going to tell you why or who I am or where I come from or anything. And we've got two mutual friends and I don't know those two people anyway. So <laughs> I find that really peculiar. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um. Like I try to answer everyone's question, mm -hmm. but usually if it's something like, well, how do I take care of this animal? Yeah. I, I, I respond back and I say, well, Google.com. Well, no, I actually have gone a different route and I say, well, what have you learned about the animal? So far? ask Jeeves, you know, and, or, um, with some of the breeding of file snakes, um, I've actually said, well, have you done any research? You know, have you looked on Google Docs to actually look at natural history, breeding cycles? Because a lot of that stuff is actually where I started. I always sure. forget that exists. Yeah, sure. It's a good resource. Um, but some of those people have actually bred files now. 
because what they did was they actually did that, came back, asked me a question, and then boom, they had luck. Yeah. See, and that's my, that's my main issue, right? That's my main issue is you see like this in groups all the time. People, you know, I see it in the Boyga group a lot. Uh, you know, people just get a manger over something. They're like, you know, let me see your setups. I want to, you know, I want to see how you guys are keeping them. And it's like, are you saying that because you literally didn't research anything or are you genuinely interested, you know? And it's like one of those things yeah. where if someone comes to me, like with a, you know, a conjure question or something or Boyga or whatever, like, I have no problems answering them. You know, like Phil said, they took the time to message you and stuff. That's fine. Sure. Like when you, when you come to me and you want all the information packaged up and wrapped in a bow and you want me to just give it to you. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm not really down with that. It's like, I did the footwork to, to learn what I have with those animals. Sure. You know, like you can do it too. And it's right. an easy barometer for it too, is if, if you messaged, if, if they message us and say, Hey, I just got a conjure out. Uh, how do I, how should I set this up? That's not, that's not a good way of going about it. But if someone comes to me and says, Hey, I just got this. I did this, this, and this. What do you think? You know, yeah. did I do this right? Well, any tips? Yeah. Now, of course I'm going to throw in, you know what I mean? It's all and about also, communication I, happens. I made my life much easier and I did a whole bunch of videos for on YouTube about there green you trees go. specifically. And so when people are like, how should I keep this neonate that I'm getting? I just send them that link and I'm like, this is how I do it. You know, hopefully it helps. It seems it, it works for me. You know, it, it may work for you. It may not. But this is just basically how I do it. And so basically taking all those common questions and stuff that you get, you know, the, the frequently asked stuff, you know, and just making a video that basically covers how I handle it makes it easier because then people don't feel like maybe they have to message me or, you know, because I, I, like we've talked about with cigars, it can be intimidating, especially green trees. And a lot of people that think they're, you know, Don Johnson. Uh, it's it can be intimidating for people to ask questions, especially in groups, given how volatile that that environment can be. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, I, I see it from both sides and I understand it, but I can tell when when someone is just too lazy to look up anything. And and a lot of it I've said, too, in the past is I think people they're part of it is like a concern that maybe the information they've been looking up isn't accurate anymore, or outdated. And so they feel like maybe their situation is unique. And so they don't see the same question that's been posted 30 times in a group. You know, they, they, they think that, that their situation is unique. And I mean, obviously right. for people that are in those groups long enough, you realize it's not, but from their point of view, it is like, they don't, they don't know these things. And I mean, obviously, like I said, you can tell the, the guys or the, you know, the people that, that are just plain lazy. Uh, but most of the time I think it is, it's not out of a, a lazy intent. It's a genuine concern and maybe some, a genuine amount of confusion. Yeah. Have you guys noticed in, in your personal messaging from people, um, and maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's me. I don't know. Maybe I'm more approachable on the internet. I have no idea, but I've noticed an influx of individuals who are not part of the community per se, but they're almost embarrassed to ask particular questions because of it. They feel like they'll look bad or they'll look dumb. They'll get tarred and feathered for it. Yeah. Right. It, it's like, it's like, Hey man, um, should I turn the heat up on this? And I know you've got them, you know, what do you keep your temps at? Because I really can't ask anyone else because in their mind, if they're asking, well, then they don't know. And clearly they're uneducated about it and they shouldn't be keeping it and blah, 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 blah. So I try and be as nice as I can and say, look, mm -hmm. you do it like this, try it like that, you know, call Rob Stone, whatever. <laughs> 
Right. Here's his number. Right. Give him a call. Right. It's midnight. His kicker. time. He's we, up. We never, we never, fin- you never get to finish your sentence, Matt. Did you ever wind up actually getting the uh, elapsoedi or elapsoedi? No, I did not. I passed uh, on. Uh, and, uh, no, no, no. Um, I regret it, but I also don't regret it just in terms of the fact that they were babies. Oh, that's brutal. And that's brutal. Uh, yeah, the best was the picture I got with Mike holding him in his hand. And I was like, you realize what you have in your hand, right? And he goes, Holy what are you talking about? Shit. I'm like, put those things down. Oh my God. <laughs> I wasn't even like 100% on him. I was like, uh, if you have any doubt, you should. Yeah. yeah. That's a horrible idea. <laughs> I mean, those things are pretty rough. I mean, people yeah. die from those bites in Africa. Yeah. Of course. And uh, then I heard I heard that babies, uh, a lot of the ones that come out of, I don't want to say it's northern Botswana or maybe like Katanga region or whatever, they're, they eat termites. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, how are you going to do that in captivity? No way. I mean, no way. I kept um, Bramini blind snakes at one point in time. Right. Um, you want and- some more? Because I got thousands in the yard. <laughs> <laughs> so those are cool animals to keep. Except for the fact that you have a, a five gallon aquarium that's all dirt. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to dig them out if you want to check on them. Yeah. Well, so it was like having um, an ant farm. Oh, yeah. They would, they would lay their eggs on the side of the glass for the humidity. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So you see like the baby pop out and be like that big, like Jesus. cruising through. Um, but they have scalation all the way around their body. So that's how they're able to propel through the actual soil, but they're actually able to even climb the glass too as well because of the moisture. So one day I found like worms crawling through the house and I was like, what the hell is going on here? Man? <laughs> we actually, uh, there's a spot up by me where we go and try and catch banded water snakes and we find blind snake orgies. Oh, we're like, you'll flip like a old rotten log and there'll be like two little stag beetles and like a hundred blinds just like in a ball. And it's like, oh, I'm not touching that. That's crazy. I've, I haven't seen those. We saw them uh, like I found them a lot when I when we lived in Hawaii when I was a kid. But I haven't seen any since. Oh, man. I remember going down to um, Blades Herp to film something. Mm-hmm. And I remember Robbie going, yeah, they're over there. And you'd see like all this like mush and stuff, just like one big ball. Wow. Yeah. Just a breeding ball of slime. (laughs) And what, I mean, what were you feeding those when you had them? Uh, Isopods. So basically you had a, it's kind of like interesting nowadays because like isopods gain so much popularity. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like you probably could do it like a cool, cage set up and there was there was a guy at daytona who had two tables with isopods and his setup was brilliant because he had like little critter keepers pre-made with like the dead leaves and the soil and everything for your isopods and then he had macro photos of everything because you can't see what the hell they are (laughs) but even down to plush toys and action figures of isopods And I was like, this has become a thing. It's like the Twilight Zone, man. Yeah. It's- you know, I messaged Joe Phelan. I said, how come you don't have isopod action figures? 
What are you doing, bro? Where's my isopod beanie baby? Right. <laughs> but they did. It was cool. Damn it, you should have got those garters, man. I've never yeah, seen them. I know because you don't see them get brought in. No, no. Um, my guess is they get brought in, but they're not labeled properly and they probably get seized. Um, yeah, because yeah. um, my confirmation on those was a curator at Fort Worth Zoo that said, Who has those? Yeah, were they, uh, the ones that you saw, they were they were like slate gray with like black banding and a little the little blushing on the side. Yeah, they were cool. Uh, did they, and they had that little pointy little face yeah. with the eyes real close. Oh, man, that's that's it, man. That's the yeah, money they, right there. Yeah, they were cheap too because Mike wanted to just get rid of them because he yeah. didn't know what they were or anything. Oh, that's awesome, awesome. I picked up. Um, man, I'm trying to think of the. It's another species of file snake, but they were maybe adult size is five inches. Hmm. So I was, I was tube feeding those things for like a year and a half. And then I called up one of my buddies down in Florida and I was like, do you want these? Cause he wanted a challenge. And I was yeah. like, I said, good luck breeding them too. <laughs> Cause I can only imagine how the Have size fun. of the babies. Yeah. Next and time you, I come across some of those, I'll, I'll let you know on those garters, though. Yeah, man, absolutely. That's like super duper up my alley. Just so long as I don't have to feed them friggin' termites <laughs> <laughs> or tube feed them or anything yeah, like that. Exactly. Ugh. That's like uh, that's like baby Aspidolaps gotatus, man. It's like pinky legs. You know, yeah. like here, have a little pinky ham hock. You know, little drumstick. Little drumstick, right? <laughs> right. Oh, jeez. Yeah. I've been down that road a couple of times. You know, it's it's ironic too because just the other day, I mean, going back to species that you know the the challenge of species that there's not a whole lot of information on. Like I just I was showing Rob on Morph Market. Someone has some Scaphiophis. I had those too, which I've never heard of. I've, I'm not familiar with them, and so I looked them up. I was like, this is like a mole snake and a beak snake had a baby. Yeah, and that's cool why I figured Bill would probably mention those. But I was yeah. like, I looked up and I Googled them and there's no information. Yeah. Like Wikipedia was like, yep, that's a snake. And then that was it. Yeah. <laughs> so do you want some literature on those? I, I did a whole bunch of research on those. I've got all kinds of scientific journal articles on those. Yeah. All right, I'll send it over. Uh, cool snake. It was another one of those things. Mike texted me, said, hey, we just got these. You want them? And I was like, well, are they in good shape? And I got the question mark, <laughs> the emoji, like to be determined. <laughs> so, so Rob, you just asked me about the pseudobodon. I'd never even seen them before, like ever. Yeah, I know Matt and I have talked about them. I sent him the Lemniscata stuff. I said, Hey, oh, you have in your African top 10, bro. Oh man, dude, there's so much cool stuff that like just never comes in. Yeah. Um, my guess is maybe one or two of them come in. Um, yeah. I mean, the Lemniscatus, I think, to fill to context it a little bit, right? That's Ethiopia, I think. So that's like Parviocula territory. Yeah. Which means we're going to get it from Kenya. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the, Germans, yeah the, only, the only people I've ever seen have them. And that's when Matt and I talked about them. I said, hey, did, have you seen these? And it's Germans in the 90s. Of course it is. 
Of course it is. Or Russians. Russians I'm pretty sure it was still called Tanganyika back then. (laughs) So, hence the Germans. What's your favorite Ganyasoma? Oh, boy. Here we go. (laughs) Here we go. There's one clear wrong, two clear wrong answers. True. True. Okay, yeah. Let me rephrase that. True Ganyasoma. Justin sweeps in and goes, I'm sick of this African crap. Come back to Asia. That's all I want to talk about. I don't know. Is it still considered just a locality? Um, the Sealar? The solid jet black? Yeah. The yeah. Stuff? yeah. Dude. The you only, know, only time uh, I ever saw those was at uh, Freight Fretz's house. Yeah, Terry, Burwell sent me a, Terry Burwell sent me a video of one he found when he was in... Uh, Why am I drawing a blank? He was in country and they found one. And that was, I sent it to the group. I Phil might've seen it, but I was awesome. like, that is the coolest snake ever. It's just a Stupid giant cool. black. Well, it's like, cool to see that Matt and I are not in the group there, Justin. That's cool. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if y'all want to be, it's, it's all day. It is all day. It's, it's relentless, That's, but we love that. That's complaining. So. <laughs> It, it, it derails more than this show does. There's very little snake talk most of the time. Yeah, that's true. Well, it, you know, it would be cool I like Captain Born of any of those um, oxycephalum, Jans and I. Um, yeah. You know, Stan Grumbeck and I, we actually talked about this today. Stan called me and said his wife, Andrea, and him, they had bred them in the early 90s. And he goes, How come we're not working with these, Matt? And I said, What happened? Because we need giant cages to keep these things properly. Yeah. Um, I, I think the only zoo that's actually breeding them consistently is actually Bronx Zoo. What do they have? Just it. And um, they're on exhibit, but they usually get surplus out. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure they're the only ones that consistently breed them year after year. Denver used to breed them in like a three by three by four on display, as you're saying. And that was the genesis of the stuff that freight got and all that in terms of the cellular stuff. But I haven't seen that lately. I, the oxys you see occasionally, a very, mm-hmm. a couple people seem to be doing okay, but I don't think they're that bad as long. I think Justin's actually on a good path with the size he got his at. And yeah, I know it's, it's funny. It's I got those from okay. Zach because he had them. They were meant to be like display animals at the college. Hmm. And he's like, these are not, these aren't good display animals. And I'm sure that's why probably a lot of zoos have avoid them for the most part, because I can like, I never see mine. If I walk in the room, I see a, a streak of white as it disappears into the foliage under the hide. And then when I do purposefully go to see them, it ain't usually all that pleasant either. Um, that's I, I mean, I love it though, right? That you purposely huh? see them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's usually only when I'm cleaning them. I really don't don't mess with mine much. No, you well, missed that. I was joking about your. Uh, you keep finding them in the cupboard. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The male he was hanging out in the pantry. And your bed, right? Uh, <laughs> no, he came out of my bedroom and into my daughter's bedroom. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry. How's yeah, that door? Freight had like six foot long like storage containers that he converted and made into cages and like just had extremely well planted everything. Like, yeah, mine are mine are in two hundred quarts right now. Well, my male isn't. He's locked up in a rack. 
an inescapable rack. Locked up in a rack. Friggin' prisoner. <laughs> I named him I named him Hannibal for a reason. <laughs> now maybe I'll pick up some just to play with. They're definitely a hunt. They're very cool. Matt, are you doing anything with the Spellerosophus atriceps at this point? I know you had no. the, the regular diadems, but yeah, no, I haven't been able to find any. Um, or you know, they pop up and they they go like that. Um, yeah, I mean, at, at some point, but I, I really hope we do start to see a lot of those things actually do come back. You know. Um, Versus just like one or two people working with them. I, I think that's the bigger goal, you know? Well, and that's one of those species that was imported enough that people were like, oh, I'll just get one later. And then there is no later. No. I mean, it's just like the Persian rat snakes. I mean, where those, yeah. their natural range, I mean, you, we'll never see wild caughts of those again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sad but true. You know, we underestimate a lot of legal boundaries and, Unfortunately, I think as a result of COVID, we're going to even see more restrictions on importation and exportation of animals. I think, I mean, I think we already have. I think a lot of the, you know, pretty much everything, it's all been been put on pause. Even Walmart doesn't get my bins in that I usually get because they come from China. Yeah. Well, you're not going to be able to get uh, what vehicles here pretty soon too because of the chip shortage now too crazy of all things you know the chip well i do have to kind of laugh about it a little bit because the chip manufacturer that manufactures those chips for the big three that's only like 20 percent of their business really? yeah most of their business is electronics uh video gaming systems because that same chip is actually used in the PlayStation 5. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. Oh man. I really I does what's how do you enjoy your Frenatum? So babies are a little bit tricky. <laughs> I talk to Rob about these all the time too. I don't this just a, I don't uh, know what it is about those. They're just so cool, man. They look so, awesome. I think one of the hard parts or tricky parts when, especially lately, is I think we see so much, I don't want to say misrepresentation of animals, but everyone's after these blue animals, right? Mm -hmm. Rhino too. Yeah. Bear and I, um, Pranatum, Bolingeri. Um, I mean, I, I mean, there are blue Prasinum too that mm -hmm. no one seems to even care about, which blows my mind. Because those are, I'm actually now starting to wonder if those blue prasinum have actually been crossed into Bolingeri too as well, which could very well be. Um, but, you know, you've got to start to wonder too, like, is it all about color or what? Because right. the number one question I get is, do you have any blue rhinos? And like Rob and I, we've talked about it. I mean, you look at some of the pictures being depicted. And then you look at like what Rob and I have in our collection. Right. How, how doctored are those? Yeah. 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 I can make mine look like that too. There, you know, you can see, Oh, it's similar. And then that head's a little bit fishy, bro. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, cause like you start to look at that lower mandible and stuff yeah. like that. And, 
and as we've talked about right so blue any anything in that green right so green yellow you know yellow and blue combo and you can get the hormonal blue stuff that's well known in chondros for 25 30 years right so that definitely 100 percent happens in rhinos and then you have some that are predispositioned to go that way anyway and then uva and uvb exposure in all reptiles that are blue has an impact one way or another. Some it makes them, the absence of it makes them more blue, abronia, right? And right, other right. seen with collar lizards and things from back studies from the 30s and 40s that it's the absence of that was actually, you know, decreasing the blue that they had. So it can work both ways. Mm -hmm. Each species, right, is going to react differently or at a minimum each clade yeah. probably is going to react differently. But uh, what it does with rhinos or... Uh, and then there is some genetic stuff to it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But yeah. some of those pictures are, they look a little sweet to me. Or you get yeah. the guys that, you get the guys that like 10, 15 years ago that were big into venomous, you know, they have Virtus Mambas and they were blue. They were stellar blue. And they don't tell you that it, two cages over is a yellow female. And then the minute he ships it out, sucker goes green. It's because the girl's not around anymore. So I've seen that before too. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot to it that, you know, unfortunately people just take advantage of, um, you know, it's just like red bearded dragons. Like a lot of people back in the day and before shows, they would uh, soak their bearded dragons in red Gatorade to bring out all that. <laughs> red. Oh yeah. Yellow belly sliders, man. Dip them in Kool-Aid. Yeah. That's what they did. Um, so I, but like, again, it comes into like, I remember sending it to Rob. I was like, can you believe this? And not about the animal. I was like blown away on the price tag. I was like thousand dollars a piece. I'm like, someone's, yeah. it, but then it changed so drastically because like Rob and I started talking when I saw the ad and then like within three hours, it said not guaranteed to develop blue and i was like so what? <laughs> where are we going with this now like i mean blue blue or green like with the frenatum i really don't even care i just think they look awesome like i love that sort of not necessarily like lace look but just that that pattern that that's just always standouts to me i don't they but wouldn't want a sketchier rhino that doesn't have a horn come on well and the frenatum are a little bit nippier just from my perspective. Um, and 100%. As, as babies, they're fish eaters. Like 100% fish eaters. You're not getting them to eat pinkies right out of the bowl or anything like mm -hmm. that. Um, you know, it's just now after like a year with some of these babies of like feeding them that they're just now switching over to pinkies. Um, but it's tricky. Wow. Some of those captive hatch phenotum, I've, I've had them take pinks and stuff. I don't know. I, I'm i with you. I think that's true. To me, they're just so tight together with boulangerie. Yeah. That one that shed off the horn, you know, it came in with it half hanging off. And on that first shed, it all came off. And it was, it, you'd think it was a phenotum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, they're super tight to they, me. They stay yeah. smaller, right? In terms of ganyos, like they're, they're smaller species. They're not real ganyos. They're not real I'm sorry, guys. I'm in the wrong podcast for that one. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, you know what I mean. Yes. 
I do. I just couldn't let it stand, man. Well, and like, so I've had Fernatum before and I've gotten rid of them. Stan had Fernatum. We got rid of them because in, from my personal perspective, they were boring. Mm. Like the Prusinum, those things are always cruising around active, mm -hmm. just like the rhinos. I mean, they make great display animals. Yeah. Um, it, from my prior experience of keeping Fernatum, they were always hiding. Mm. You know, and I think they're just the terrestrial, they're filling the terrestrial niche, right? Whereas the Belangerie are up at least, right. you know, four or five feet or something, yeah. like, you know, and higher. Yeah, I only ask. They're in the same spot, at least over some of that range. Yeah. yeah. I, I, always, I only ask because I just remember back in the day it being like they were the the IJ carpets to, you know what I mean? North, like they were just the smaller one. You know, it was it was not as crazy a setup per se. But then again, I don't know anybody that actually kept them like long term. Yeah, I think, well, and, you know, thinking about it, too, a lot of this stuff, a lot of people didn't keep long term. Yeah. The minute yeah. all pythons came around, everyone like vanished. Yeah. Um, only a couple of people kept what they really liked. I mean, Carl Crumkey, Stan Grumbeck. I mean, those guys really were in, you know, even uh, I'll throw the circles in there too. I mean, they kept with a lot of the colubrids and stuff like that. So it's tough, Rob, but I mean, that was the truth. <laughs> well, what's it been like with mandarins? Cause I remember as a kid when those, like no one really had those, you know, we're talking like early two thousands is, is sort of the, give you context of the time frame I'm talking about when those were crazy amounts of money. And I remember hearing, you know, reading and, and, you know, reptiles magazine and stuff like that, that they just, they were, they were tough. You know, they were hard to, they, they didn't do well, but now yeah. I mean, it's, they've, they've come a very long way. And I think it's the same with rhinos, but that was more of an availability thing. Right. anything else well and if you read some of those old articles i mean the care the temperature perspectives things of that nature i mean i wouldn't even keep half the animals that way anymore um i mean even now this year i'm, I'm starting to keep animals differently with the, than what i've had in the past and just playing around and experimenting with stuff um, rob and i talked about with like the rhinos and stuff like that and just trying to adjust things because Unfortunately, temperature, you know, here in the Midwest and humidity here in the mid Midwest is much different than other areas around. Definitely. The um, so, you know, I bought um, I bought some and I got some as a gift. Those Govi, uh, the Bluetooth yeah. like temperature monitors. Mm -hmm. and stuff. Yep. Those things are awesome. They're awesome. Yeah. Um, I did. I When I got my my my. I bought two originally because I remember Ian Bissell was talking about them and I was like, okay, like I could see myself using them, but then I got them and I was like putting them in everything. Cause I was like, I, I want to know, you know, they ended up, I enjoyed them way more than I probably should have, you know? I just yeah. talked to Justin yesterday about it. Cause I have a friend mm -hmm. who, who's trying to pair up diamonds and uh, he wanted to do something like that. And I just texted Justin and I was actually going to ask you, Justin and Matt too, cause you clearly have them. Do you have to be within range to bluetooth for it to send to your phone so if i go to work for the day when i come home it's going to give me all the data at once it loads it yeah if you okay. want the one where you can check it remotely then you go with the sensor push brand uh they have like you buy uh there's it looks like a like a router basically mm -hmm. 
and it's it allows you to check in remotely from wherever you're at. Those are the ones that Middleton uses. And those are like fifty bucks a piece, something like that. Yeah, those are a little more expensive. Okay, okay. You get like a kit that comes with one, and then the the extender or whatever you want to call it. I got you. Yeah, so I mean, I really like like the Herbstat Wi-Fi and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I bought a couple of those, um, and it was just purely, you know, if anything fails, right, it's going to be your thermostat or the heating element, yeah. like that. So, I thought they were worthwhile. Cool. Duly noted. I mean, those Gobies are nice because I mean they do the job, and they're compared to other brands and models. I mean, they're they're the, they're cheap. I think they're like fifteen bucks a piece. Yeah, you know, and you you set it up on your phone, and you you give you know if you have multiple units, you can name them. Like I had one that was made that was for the incubator, and so that one was labeled incubator. And then I had one that I used to check cages and stuff, and that one was called Traveler One. And you know, anytime if I wanted to keep track of what's what, then I'd you know they're right there on your phone. You just pick the one you want to look at and it loads all the data and you can export it as a CSV file. And it's really Andy. Traveler one was the male Jansen. I, right? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> but it's, it's funny now because we are so spoiled because we have stuff like that. You look like 30 years ago, something like that would have cost you thousands of dollars and you, you know, you wouldn't, have one of these you know a phone to be able to yeah. just be like yeah i'm gonna check my temperatures think about the pioneers Crazy. in our think about the pioneers in our hobby our industry our community that still used mercury thermometers and now we have <laughs> now we have temp guns <laughs> what, what's crazy to me is i think it was like last month i had a message sent to me on how to set up a heat rock <laughs> And I was like, really? where is it? The wow. trash can? <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's cut the wire, throw it in the trash, call it. <laughs> I can't believe they still sell those things. Yeah. I actually saw a guy who had, I don't remember what the species was, but it was an arid, it was an arid setup. And he got like three or four heat rocks and put them on the, it was a glass enclosure, exoterra or something, put the heat rocks on the bottom had the wire go up through fake foam and then built like a lattice above the rocks and then filled everything in with dirt. So if the animal dug through the dirt, it would never actually reach the heat rock, but the but the three rocks that were there radiated heat and made the ground warm. That sounds but, like way more work than it needs to be. But it it was it was cool, but again, could have just got, you know, heat tape. <laughs> Or an under tank heating mat. Yeah, exactly. Like, talking about going around your elbow to get to your knee. <laughs> he did it though. He got him on clearance at Pecto. He probably had them from the seventies, and just they still worked. <laughs> <laughs> but that is some pioneering stuff, though. I mean, like yeah. where we've come from, right? Like, yeah. All of that stuff. Yep. We got it so easy now. Like you have the internet, and you have Amazon, and Don't still know. people fuck it up. What else yeah. do you need? Yeah, it's true. That's true. And I think, I mean, going back to the whole, you know, information and people wanting, you know, asking questions and stuff like that. I mean, I guess part of it could be like that. There's so much information. It's overwhelming. And, and you know, you don't know what's what's accurate and what's not. But to me, to get the, the work around that is is as simple as reading more than one page. Yeah. cross-referencing cross the information you're reading with another source and being like, okay, well, both, yeah. you know, these handful of pages are all saying the same thing about temperature, so that's probably accurate. 
you got one saying, you know, keep Ganyasoma on Cyprus. You got another one saying, keep Ganyasoma on newspaper, you know, and then you look around, more people are saying, don't keep them on Cyprus, keep them on newspaper, you know, skin issues, whatever. And, uh, well, and it was back to like reading the first page or whatever with the Herbstat Wi-Fi's. Mm-hmm. I, I've never seen this documented anywhere. I'm like prior models, anything like that. But it said, right, there's an extra sheet of paper and there was a whole warning thing on it. And it said, over time, if you have power failures, these thermostats go bad because of the thermal couple inside of here. So really, if you have power surges or issues with this, you should replace the unit. Never have I seen that written down on any other model, competitor model. I, yeah, that explains but, a lot. Why, they, why, you know, why, why let people know they're probably going to have to buy a new one? Right. It's bad for business. But also saves your, you know, collection or... Mm-hmm. Assets too as well. Um, but between my herb stat that I use on my incubator and then the the VE models I use on on a rack uh, or two no a rack yeah um, the herb stat I definitely I, I prefer that you know it's a well bit built piece of engineering yeah you know I actually um, I bought some of those little zoom med ones that are just rheostats just turn on and off mm-hmm. i've actually been impressed with those too i've got some of those ink birds and i've, I've been happy with them not the yeah. ones with the two cords but the ones that are just a wall outlet that you plug it in you program it and, um there's one model where you can actually set temperature drops like different times different temperatures and i mean i've been happy with those so far i had one rack that got a little squirrely but that's because of the my, the probe fell out and things got real warm. I walked in and smelled burning plastic and was like, that's not good. And I looked and heat tape on one shelf was starting to turn brown. And I was like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. I've melted a rack before. It's not fun. Oof. That's the first time I've ever had any issues. It was scary because I was like, yeah. something smells like it was very, very faint. I was like, something's burning. So I started looking around and sure enough. Uh, yeah, after that one incident of burning a rack, I, I tried to replace all those like thermostats or the probes, you know, every couple of years just because, I mean, it's inevitable, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, you think about it too, all the, you know, the current that's constantly like changing and, you know, it's, I guess it's not too far off from a, you know, like a trans, uh, 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 transmission in a car, you know, you just constant that physical just, yeah. movement of, of things and currents and whatnot eventually it's gonna it's gonna wear down you know yeah. same with heat tape you know if you got belly heat and like moving that rack over sawing at that heat tape over years and years and years with that tub like eventually yeah. that's why i'm not a big fan of belly heat i prefer back heat on most of my stuff just because that's not as big of a concern yeah. especially well, when those things have feet right well and you know having worked at um chicago reptile house in the past and stuff like that I remember people coming in and saying like, Hey, I need to buy new heat tape because it melted. And then you'd start to ask them questions about like, where'd you put the probe? (laughs) And they were like, well, we just stuck it at the back. I'm like, you didn't put it near the tape. No, we didn't know you had to do that. I'm like, well, your tape's here and you have your probe like six inches away. If you even have that set at like 90 degrees for a ball Python or whatever, Uh, you're getting in triple digits easy. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm guilty of it. I've I've taped up a probe where the the rack was inaccessible to have the cord come out the back, so I'd run it up the front, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and it would never get touched by anything. But my dumbass, I did not freshen the tape over time, and that adhesive deteriorates. It's tape, mm-hmm. and I was using like good packing tape, you know, for like moving boxes and stuff. And the the tape had just slowly peeled away, and that probe would shift, and it would peel away, and that probe would shift, and that pe- it would peel away, and that probe would shift. And I'm like, man, why? Where did this heat spike come from? And it's because the probe isn't anywhere near the tape. Yeah. Because the heat tape, excuse me, because the adhesive tape that I'd used to hold everything in place had just slowly peeled off. And I think that's what happened with this rack. Is yeah. you know just it was HVAC tape or something, and it just you know you're heating up what's essentially like glue. Yeah. And so it just slowly, like you were saying, it just slowly comes apart. And, uh, you know, even that small rack of conjures that I have, you know, the, the grow outs with that, that rack from Sean, uh, the probe fell out because I had it taped and it, it, one day I was, I saw all the conjures were like as close to the front of the tub as they could freaking get. So I was like, something ain't right. And so I went and checked and I mean, your back of the tub was like approaching like a hundred degrees plus. And I went and looked and the probe was hanging out the back of the tub on the floor and I was like, well, no wonder. So I really dodged a bullet with that one. Like none of those, none of those snakes got, you know, had any issues or anything like that. But that was, that was a wake up call too. Yeah. Yeah. I've also seen like, I use a lot of ceramic emitters. Um, I love ceramic emitters because I know it sounds, you know, ghetto, but I can take the dome and just flip it upside down. And now it's casting out into the room. And like, I've had like where it's a cold night. And I don't want to necessarily put the heater on. But I'll flip a I'll flip two domes over and it brings it up, you know, six degrees, whatever, just enough to take the edge off. But I've seen it where people don't realize that even though the dome and even though it's archaic, the dome has the ceramic top to it, right? It's still set to a particular wattage. So all of a sudden you screw that hundred watt ceramic emitter in there and it's only rated for 60. Now you're gonna have some bad issues. Real quick, <laughs> Rob. Rob's he's not mad. He's just disappointed. Yeah. Well, and, like my favorite still was like some people try to cut costs and instead of buying like the ceramic backing for the outlet, or right? It's when they buy the plastic one and then they oh put yeah, fifty watt bulb in there and it has a little button that you push back and forth. Yeah. yeah. And they just melt it because mm-hmm. they, it's not rated for the heat. Yeah. Yeah. Save ten dollars and just cost yourself a fire in your house or something. I've lost That's all credibility. With Rob. <laughs> yeah, because I just, I just, I'm a new homeowner. I mean, we've like less than two years we've been in this house, and you know that rack the other day when it started burning, I was like, this could have been really bad. Yep. I didn't tell Katie. <laughs> I would have. Oh man. That would have been that would have been bad. I was like, this is a need to know situation. And she don't need Is this the part of the show where we tell them she's right behind you? No, she already went to bed. So I'm in the oh, clear. Unless she okay. can hear me through the through the wall, which is possible. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but long story short, I'm pretty much gonna have to trash that rack because I'm not feeling like the need to it was it's used anyways. It was my dad's when he had some some bears. He got it from somebody else, but or uh, he got alternative and whatnot and Instead of replacing the tape, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but is it the one that has the open sides? So, you know, the rack that has all the beards in it, the black yeah. one, yeah, the white one underneath that. Oh, okay. Okay. 
Yeah, that, I'm pretty that, sure it's an AP rec too. Which that's is probably the reason why I hate it so much. Yeah. <laughs> your your crusade against that. Dude, it's it's real. Oh man. You know, before I bought all those ARS racks, I actually had an order into AP to replace my AP racks. And I called and I was like, uh, are these coming? Nope. No, well, I don't know. Another couple When's of the months. next Olympics. I know. <laughs> like, it, from my perspective, if you have that much business, wouldn't you hire more people or buy another CNC? Thank you. No. Or just outsource it. Like, oh find a company that would do it for you, buy it assembled, and ship it off. And honestly, it sounds like... What I've been saying since day one. It sounds like one of those... I don't know how to phrase this. Okay. In my, in my years of working retail, I've had a lot of companies where a guy comes up with a great product, gets the materials and the capital pr to produce it, it explodes in popularity, but he still has his day job and he can't quit the day job. So instead of doing the, the, the company he started five days a week, he's doing it one day a week or two days a week, you know, doesn't have the time to hire staff, doesn't trust the staff because he has to train them and trust yeah. them to be up to his par. So it just gets backburnered and backburnered and backburnered. And now what could be done in a day and a half is now a four week lead time. Yeah, well, you know, you know how you can circumvent that. You stop taking orders until you're caught up. Well, and yeah. I think that's also. I mean, don't get me wrong; they make a great product. Like I, I really liked it. It was just the lead time sucked. Yeah, <laughs> like just flat out. Um, but you know, it, it's wild. Like I mean, they had so many orders. I think they still do have so many. They orders. do. Like. But, you know, then they partnered up with um, what's the ball python breeder, and now they're making his cage specifically. Will Banks, Mike Will Banks. They make a cage specifically for Will Banks that he sells in his store. So, like, where do priorities come then? Yeah. Yeah. But you said you've got all ARS now? Yeah. So I have the hybrid series. I have the 70, 55, 50 and then I bought um, just a six high the hatchling rack just mm -hmm. to play around with. I was curious how it actually worked. And you said you have the you said 50 and 55? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And those are on casters. Those are like free roaming. Yes, they are, yeah. Free, they're free range. They're free range. Free range yeah. going casters. I'm actually I have nothing to put in that rack, but I really, really want that rack. And and <laughs> Billy, Billy's entire room Billy's is nice. Yeah. Billy's entire room is ARS, and every time I go there, I'm just like, I need this in my life. I don't have any animals to put in it, but it'll work. <laughs> Billy Hunt, for the record. Yeah. Well, and, you know, Brian over there, he's struggling, too, to keep up with demand. You know, they his demand has gone through the roof, too. But part of it, too, is supplier shortages with steel and plastic and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Um, See, and that's one thing. Like, I don't. That's 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 something that's out of your hands as the as the maker and owner of that business. Right. But it's like when you continue to take in orders and people are like asking for their their product, you know, damn near a year after they've ordered it. It's like at some point you got to be like, you know, maybe we should just stop taking orders and 
get these cranked out, at least get to a point to where our lead times aren't as crazy. And maybe they do do that. Maybe uh, there's there's probably a lot I don't know. So I, I will give them the benefit of the doubt, but I just can't wrap my head around continuing to bring on more jobs when you already have such a giant amount of work in front of you already. Yeah, I agree. Um, that's why like people always ask me to be on like wait lists and stuff. I won't even do I don't bother with them either. Uh, first come, first serve, but also so many people back out at the end of the day, right? Oh, yeah, cool. I know Dan Maleri's talked about that a lot. Yeah. yeah. He said there's almost always a handful with every shipment he gets in that, you know, they've been wanting them for months. And then when the time comes for them to pay up, they're either nowhere to be found or they're just like, oh, yeah, never mind. Sorry. Which is fine because I've made out on a lot of those type of things. I've had people call me. <laughs> you like, hey, I no, I hey, listen, I don't circle the carcass. I just sit back on the tree line, wait, wait for that sucker to be, you know, wait for the jackals to run off, and I just kind of walk over, you know. But that's yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have a massive collection of Drymacon in this seventies. <laughs> Dude, it's bad. It's so bad, man. And like, I'm looking at my, I'm looking at my dries now, and they're in four foot visions. And I'm like, what have I done? What What, what have I done? What Why did I do this? Why? <laughs> you I know? need more. And now it's at the point where they're not. There's they still got plenty of time in those four foots. They do. I mean, they're only like five six years old, but they still got plenty of room. But I'm starting to notice them legitimately exploring more. And like two o'clock in the morning, you'll hear, ba boom. Because it was going on the lip of the vision, and it's it's too big to really sit up there, and it just kind of plop. <laughs> so I got to do something. That probably within the next year, I want to do something. But I know that if I get like a nice ass ARS rack, then I'm gonna have to fill it, and then that's not not good. <laughs> See, I like I like the ones Billy has. The only thing that drives me crazy about him is just the, the opaque tubs. There's just something that for me. Mm-hmm. I'm just very turned off at the fact that the snakes don't get like a photo period. Yeah, but but they do because the whole top is that is that. Uh, yeah, but that's 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 like you being kept in a cardboard box, and then someone just took a pencil and shanked so, some holes in. Yeah, it. yeah, I guess. You know, I just I don't. They're huh? like crystal clear. Which ones? They're crystal clear tubs from ARS. It looks like glass. No, the ones Billy uses are those uh, those gray ones, the opaque ones. And yeah. see. That didn't even cross my mind. What kills me about those ones that Billy has, and again, Billy's stuff is tip top, man. Like I, his collection is what my what I aspire to have mine look like one day. Um, is the stupid water bowl built into the yeah top. yeah like the bane of my existence. Yep. And like and the, and like the species that I would want to put in there, like like dries and bitis and a lot Good of like. Luck bigger terrestrial stuff like that's taking up surface area the animal's gonna probably not like if i put big bitus in there they're not gonna drink out of that bowl i'm still gonna have to pour water in the bottom and let them drink the puddle like i know i'm gonna have to do that so it's like i want to i want to almost like just like cut it off with a knife i guess it would be one thing if it was like in a corner but it's the fact that it's like uh, it's towards the front but it's like in the dead center yeah and it's well, like oh, without oh, it, so that's the choice. It, it's like oh, you have you have liasis or Morelia. Oh, guaranteed that the minute you close it, it's just gonna spill all over the place. Uh, so one uh, positive thing, I guess, out of this conversation is when you order your ARS rack, right? You can order it without the the cup holder. There is a god. Yeah. 
<laughs> I can get it clear and no cup holder. Brilliant. I don't know. I just Brilliant. I I am of the opinion that photo period has a bigger effect than than we sort of, of give it. So it does. Hundred percent. Of course. Um, I actually have my room set up to actually turn on and set, turn off at certain times. Nice. Yeah. It definitely has a role. If you, you're going to keep animals in racks, you still need to have a photo period for now, them to naturally cycle. Do you feather your UV and heat so the heat turns off or gradually or turns off before the UV? No, I don't do anything like that. Okay. I do constant heat. But all the light bulbs in that room are all UVB bulbs. Oh, nice. Even like just the ones in the ceiling? Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. That's you give yourself a sunburn. Yeah, but I get a chance, man. look at this thing. He's <laughs> <laughs> standing bed. He's standing while he's cleaning cages. He's doing it naked. I know. Got <laughs> to make sure he doesn't have any of the tan lines, so he doesn't. Yeah, you just got to banana hammock. That lower drawer with the drymacon when you're doing that. Like oh that. my god, the dangliest Jesus <laughs> flying out of there, <laughs> man. Uh, See, UV makes. I mean, I'm I'm all for using UV. I personally don't, um, be it out of laziness or whatever. But like David Brahms uses UV with some of his chondros, but he limits the number of hours that that light is on because UV always has made just made me a little nervous because I'm like, if you're not giving the animals anywhere to really hide from it, like you're you're cooking you're, them. You're cooking, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, most of this though is not just on a stick in a sterile cage on puppy pads, bro. Burn. Yeah, Burn. my Fair enough. You know, stack it full of cork, and then it's like, oh, you're regulating yourself. I don't have to try and regulate your life. Yeah. I don't want to kill any more chondros. Well, I figured just going back to those uh, cup holders and the ARS tubs, I figured that if I wound up getting stuck with those those cup holder things, I was literally going to find some kind of like deli lid that I could fit on top of it. Just fill it with substrate. Cut a hole make in it, it. level. Well, no, I was going to say cut a hole in it and just pack it full of swag and make it a, a humid thing. That's like, that was my that was my thought process to do that. But what if it's like a six foot Vietnamese blue beauty or something? Yeah, it doesn't have to go in there. It just has to pump out the humidity. I don't know. Or you could just use a bigger water bowl and not have the stupid thing in the middle. And then I got to spill it every time. Well, yeah, it's kind of a pro con, right? Right. And actually, like, I don't want the big rack because then I'll have big stuff. But like every day I look at my baby Fuscus and I'm like, what the fuck did I just do? <laughs> you know, it's like, why did I buy these things? <laughs> you love those things. I love those things, dude. And like the they're so colorful and they're so tame, it freaks me out. Cause like everything that I have wants to kill me. Like it's just that's just my MO with apparently at this point. But those waters, like I take them out and they're like, What's up, man? Like all like cute and puppy dog. And I'm like, oh, you're gonna be 10 foot and break everyone's hearts. I know it. Well, they only get that big if they're eating these rats that are eating, you know, this artificial fruit. Yeah. Gardens, man, in the wild, like the ones in the yeah. wild were not that big, but the ones in the botanic garden, that was what an 11 foot. It was an yeah. olive, you know? yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 But I have to say that all of those were actually fine. The slaty grays are the ones that are wound up. Nice, not great. Bit yeah. Owen's hat. <laughs> <laughs> 
That was a, the angriest snake I've seen in a long time. <laughs> the fuscus were flying. Nice, nice. <laughs> Matt, what uh, are those, the hatchling rack you were talking about, are those the, everyone's hot to trot on the pencil. Oh, no, 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 no. So I'm not a big fan. Thing. Is this a six cord? Is it the, what no, is it? So, so here, this was my big thing on um, ARS's hatchling rack is it's kind of, let's see, the Vision 18 tub. Do you guys remember that? It's like a little wider. It's yeah. like, I don't know, four or five inches in width and then like 15, 16 inches deep. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a short, okay, from ARS. But the reason why I liked it was I was trying to move away from the six quart tubs. And my personal opinion is I, I feel like a lot of hatchlings will actually use all the extra space, but because they're shorter, you'll be able to actually house them all in one rack versus yeah. like have multiple six quart tubs and stuff like that. Right. So that's actually why I went that route um, just for more space for the animal to use. And I mean, that makes, that makes sense in the, you know, in the context of this, you know, a lot of the species you're, you're working with, they just, they don't need that, that height necessarily. They, you know, they're, no. they're going to get more use out of that surface area rather than the, you know, the empty space. Yeah. In the no. And the other benefit of it is it has a water bowl holder. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, man, I, I mean, it does work out pretty well. I never, I never understood the pencil rack thing because like, yeah, okay, you breed corn snakes or you breed, you know, baby cow kings or whatever. Hog noses or whatever. Yeah, hog noses. Sure, yeah. it's great for it six months. There. Yeah. yeah, but but dude, like six months in, you're like, okay, time to upgrade. Well, why did I spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on this thing for six months a year? Super short-term question. You know, yeah. it's just saying, yeah. in the super short-term, will this tide me over without doing sandwich tubs or whatever? Yeah. But the tolerance on that has to be so tight. The Dinadon, <laughs> Matt can speak to Dinadon. Oh, Man, those things can yeah. get out of anything. You got problems with Ghani's getting out. Oh, boy. Yeah, see, so I bought one of those. I don't those. want to talk about it. <laughs> I bought one of those reptile basic pencil racks. Mm -hmm. I threw it in the trash in a week. I was like, this was a waste of money. Um, there wasn't enough ventilation coming across the tub. It's such a long distance that it kind of has to, yeah. Well, and then, so the tubs were a pain to like pull in and out. Do so they then have I, a tab? And like you grab the tab and pull the tab out? Yeah. Um, and so. a couple, you know. Yeah, so I drilled a hole. You push and, and then they come. Yeah. Huh. So I drilled a hole and put like a eye socket on it to pull open and close. Yeah. <laughs> so like now I've modified the whole bag. <laughs> Why'd I even go this route? Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I'd avoid those things at all costs. But I've seen people put like baby ball pythons in there too. Yeah. Yeah, man. We had a we had a one at uh, Strictly back in the day, and I, I put a bunch of baby rhinos and vipers, and uh, after like three four weeks, maybe you know two months, whatever, it looked like veal. It was just like this snake. <laughs> in the box and like you know it can't go anywhere it's like it's like jello mold box fed veal i felt horrible you just think <laughs> and then the snake takes a crap you pull the whole drawer out the pencil drawer and the poops at the back just because it couldn't turn around to move like 
it's just in this veal box, and I felt so bad. Heck, man, you can breed them in those. They just have to be pointed the same, going the same direction. Yeah. They've got to be on clockwise. Yeah, right. They might have more success that way because the it's, female can't go anywhere. It's like this. Yeah, thanks. It's like the stall in the bull riding, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so how long can that guy hang on? <laughs> well, I mean, that's kind of it, too, right, though? I mean, everyone looked at minimalistic aspects of care versus like bigger picture. Yeah. I mean, I, I would love to have all display cages too, but it, I, I just don't have the time, unfortunately. Yes, yeah. I mean, I like to, there's, I just feel like there's a happy medium, you know, like if I've, I've feel I've said it a million times, like if the recipe calls for X, give it X, you know, if it, if it, the you know the python portal setups that i have the ganyasoma and the boiga and like that's a good example like those you could totally deck out with live plants and stuff if you wanted to um but it's also not going to cost you an arm and a leg you know to get this giant pvc cage i mean granted they're not meant to be permanent at least for for those species just because they will outgrow them and they are uh you know just the that me and rob have talked about that uh, you know a lot it's just it's exhausting that whole debate of you know naturalistic setups versus the simple ones and you know it's just it's not that cut and dry like do do what the species and that recipe calls for like yeah and matt i was going to ask you on your ars on the the 50s and up is there room to because like i know billy's are super tight i don't know exactly what size he has because he has like three different sizes but is there room in between like Obviously, the tubs have space in between them with with screen. Is there space in between the each tub on the sides where you could put a UV strip or like some of the like new T five lighting or T eight lighting? I think it is. Nah, you're not going to have enough space. There's no room because like I thought about that too. I was like, man, if I can get you know the right spectrum in like those thin, long, you know those 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 real thin. I don't want to say pencil, but pencil UVs. I can make that work in the ARS, but. Well, and, you know, even like UVB, the animal has to get away from it, right? Sure. Because even like for humans, I think we only need, I think it's like five minutes a day to process vitamin D3. Wow. So, like, when you really put it into perspective, like, we should offer it, but the animal should be able to take care of it. If you're putting it there and it's limited. Yeah. I don't think you're going to have enough um, attributes to get away from it. Sure. That's why, I mean, like being in the room, even having little holes and stuff like that. I mean, the UVB is going to be penetrating mm-hmm. through all that stuff. Um, you're just not getting one big blast, right? Yeah. But even in the wild, when you start to take it into perspective of how animals are actually using you know, and cycling, I mean, they're under foliage. They're not getting full blast like spectrum. Like, here you go. Um, yeah. So, well, and as much as I joked about them mediating their own use, which I think they do to some extent, probably, you have stuff like Boland's pythons that are attuned to seeking that out and they'll overutilize it, right? Because they don't have in the wild, they haven't evolved an overexposure functionality to say, oh, this is, I've reached my capacity and now it's too much because that never happens. So they've spent millennia evolving to maximize that usage and now it doesn't go away. So they actually don't have a shutoff functionality. You can overdo them very easily. Really? 
Yeah, we could talk about bones all day because I have my own little theory on why no one's successful with them either. Well, if you want to say it, yeah. <laughs> well, I got to prove it first. I got to get some and then breed them and show, hey, here you go. <laughs> okay. No, no. I, I just think, again, I think we overthink some of the stuff. You know, it, it really is true. And you, you've got to put into respect the natural history of the animals and kind of adjust accordingly to it. So, And it'll be that much easier for you to get them now that they've quadrupled in price from the already hey. expensive price. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's kind of, it, it still blows me away at the pricing on those things. Um, but it also blows me away that we're not seeing reproductive success like being able to produce eggs one year but not like produce a whole clutch just like three babies tells me that we're missing a, a big part of the picture there yeah I I have my it'll, own it'll happen in due time I, I have my own theory that is not scientific in the least capacity whatsoever but you have a lot of animals on this planet that are solitary you have a lot of animals on this planet that are rare for lack of a better synonym but sometimes you know you you go on a blind date you just don't like the girl you know and it would not shock me if they are more selective than we give them credit for you know what's well, a common thing right with the alberts and lesser sundas and all this like it's a well-known rings you know that's a known a known entity unfortunately this stuff with the price just isn't going to help you know yeah. it makes yeah. it that much harder for it, that much less likely and that it's somewhat new for bolins right they've always been more expensive than maybe something else equally everything else right i think of it even like going back 20 years right and i'm sure you know, you guys have all seen this where it's like Prasinus were always the most expensive, even though far more Prasinus came in than Bacari, right? So you got the black trees that were $300, even though they had never been bred in captivity mm -hmm. you know, up until, you know, the last five, five to 10 years. Whereas Prasinus, that wasn't actually the case because they were always this pretty green monitor, right? That everyone was going after. Yeah. So they'd actually been bred. They were, it had been done. And they were four, four, five to ten times the price because oh, well, this is the desirable item. This is the one we can't get. Bakara come in, they were two hundred fifty, three hundred dollars, and it was like, ah, who cares? Well, no one had actually bred them. It, it brings me back to Matt with the Frenata. You know, as much as I had kind of poked the fun because I want to do that relative to Rhino, anything relative to Rhino, so I'll poke the fun. But it's like. What those any of the Ghanis save oxies? It's like you're talking single digits of people who've bred those. So you bred for not, you know, like how many people have bred for Nottam in the U.S.? I it's think only a that's probably yeah. a hand can cover that. Probably, yeah. to be honest with you. You yeah. know, and it, it's the same because it just wasn't the the point of emphasis and stuff. No, I mean to be frank, I, I get more inquiries about rhino rats. You know, and over the years, even the green bush have grown in such popularity. Um, but again, I, I think a lot of it stands off to, you know, 
display animals. I think that is a big push as a late. Um, I think some people, instead of keeping large number of animals, are keeping select groups of animals and putting them in display cages, which I think is awesome. I think mm-hmm. that, that really is cool. Um, the European model, as we call it. Mm-hmm. But I've also seen some European collections that are huge and they have like all display cages. And I'm like, how do you clean like this? Half their house. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, Matt, do you have the um, uh, semi variegata, the bush snakes, the Africans? No, I did at one point, though. Because I've noticed them. They recently were imported maybe six to eight months ago. Yeah, I've been seeing a a lot of them. And I've been seeing people keeping them. And the response that you're seeing from people on social media that's keeping them is way more naturalistic than it was seven to ten years ago. And I think people realize that if I don't want this thing to die, I have to leave it alone and and set it up right and not stress it out so it gapes its black mouth at me you know which is awesome and cool but like that you're 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 back you're going backwards you know right Uh, and i just i don't know anybody that's actually legit working with them shy of having just like a pet yeah i think most of those are probably pet animals to be honest because i i bet you a big chunk of them are are coming from direct importers or wholesalers Mm -hmm. um and you know most of those people don't want to sex the animals either. They're they're merely looking to sell the animal. Sure. Um, you know, so it gets a little tricky that way. Or people are just buying a pair, and yeah. one of them dies. And I mean, because they're lizard eaters, basically. Yeah. I mean, yeah. um, but even with those, those animals were always out when I had them basking mm-hmm. and stuff like that hanging out um real secretive like in terms of like using yeah vines and stuff like that but cool animal um yeah, they're awesome yeah Did I mean, you like dryads. i mean awesome display animals yeah um, but you just gotta remember for some of that stuff they're rear fangs so you gotta be a little extra cautious too of course you mean the superior rhino <laughs> I knew I was waiting for that tonight. I was waiting for somebody to bring up Philos and that was just gonna the real rhino. Well, so here's here's like my whole thing with like rear fang stuff. Is like rear rear fang brings a lot of risks and attributes to it that unfortunately the common keeper is not prepared for. Agreed. Uh, Like uh, Rob, I was talking to Bill Hughes the other day. And he was talking about uh, tricolor hognose because we got on like a side tangent and stuff like that. And he's like, hey, did you ever see this Reddit article about this woman that got bit and chewed on by a tricolor? <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? So I read it and I'm like, like this woman like had like a crazy response to it, like tearing of muscles and all kinds Jeez. of stuff. Um, really? I'll have to hunt that down too because now I'm curious. It, it, it's actually it's the Reddit article. It was really interesting, but it doesn't surprise me that that could happen. So uh, what you're saying is, is that she actually got bit by a KwaZulu Natal puff adder? That's what she did. Basically, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, but I mean, even with Phyllodryas, um, even a lot of the Boiga, I, I think there's a lot of potential for the inexperienced keeper just to think, Hey, this is a rear fanged animal. And 
Um, it has to chew. Uh, I don't know. Oh, I got hit in 10 seconds. So best of luck to you, my friend. Matt, what'd you get hit by? Uh, Boiga Melanota in the yeah. side. Oh, of yeah, yeah. You told me. I remember you told me about that. Yeah, I mean, it was a shitty spot. Oh. It was bad. I mean, the whole area turned black. Like, well, I actually, it's funny you bring up Boiga because last night, like in Justin and I's little group chat, I, I stumbled across an individual who has a considerable collection of Boiga. And he's trying to do this live Instagram story thing, one-handed with the snake and one-handed with the phone. And, and like the, the Mr. Miyagi in my mind starts to roll. And I'm thinking to myself that Darky this person, has, yeah, this, um, <laughs> Ryan Cox, Jesus. So uh, the thought starts going to my mind, like not only does this individual have no business keeping these animals because he clearly does not understand the liquidity of the species. And who am I to tell someone what they can and cannot keep? But the problem is he's doing it on social media and he's showing how, you know, he's lunging and moving and he drops the snake on the floor and spills over its its tub. And I'm thinking, this can go real bad real quick because he could get a, barely a scratch, go into anaphylactics, and die, and the Instagram live is still rolling. Yeah. Like, like this is not what needs to happen. And like, I started thinking about like watching his movements and like how, you know, the snake would s up and it would gape and it would do like a false strike and he would move his whole body and like just thinking of like body mechanics and like, you know, how I, mean, I said in the group chat, I was like, I, unless it's an oh shit moment. I don't move around the animal. I move the animal around me. Right. And like, just like watching these and like thinking about how many people are going to see this video and think, wow, that's awesome. Oh my God. I want that too. That's so cool. And oh, I can set them up arboreal and have all this fun with it. And it's like, you can't do it like that. Well, yeah, you see I mean, it on Instagram all the time with people putting cyan on their face and like the, you know, the girls with their small melanota and they're all like, yeah, color uh, with it and, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I worked with Venomous when I was in grad school and stuff like that. And I mean, that's yeah. basic training. Like you control the snake. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, it's easy to slip up. Yeah. And, Especially with a species like that, that everyone, you know, is so nonchalant with, you know, and it's like Ryan Cox always says, foreign protein is foreign protein. You know, if I take five cc's of Coca-Cola and shoot it in my vein, Good chance I'm gonna freaking die, you know. So yeah, I mean, Mountain Dew might turn you into a mutant, though. Yeah, right. Make it special try. powers. That's the key to the sweet success. IV Mountain Dew. But so I, I'm, like, I'm still blown Dew. away at like how many people have chased after Boiga. Yeah. Yeah. Or better yet, this new surge I keep seeing Telatornis everywhere. And I'm really? like, I keep seeing it and like, oh man, look at my Teletornis. Look at my Teletornis. I'm like, man, that's a gorgeous specimen. It's, you know, rich black, the big, beautiful eyes. You know, it's, it's, it's boom slang light. But all I, can, light. all I can think about is somebody's going to have that thing and it's going to be perched up in their hand, totally chill. It's going to look at them crooked and it's going to nab their finger. And they're like, ow, oh crap, I got bit. Oh man, all right, I know now. I know it didn't I chew on me. I'm good. Yeah, exactly. And all of a sudden, shit's gonna start to shut down for whatever reason. And all of a sudden, now it could be something as minute as like a blood infection that goes awry. You know, when they get sepsis or whatever. Who the hell knows? But like, 
something as I don't want to say trivial as that. That's just that's not good, man. It's not good. Yeah, it, well, and it's not good for the hobby, right? Right, right. Especially and with it, social media and stuff like that. We, I, I don't. I'm, I'm assuming that both of you guys have messed with Teletornis, and uh, <laughs> like Rob, Rob kept him. Yeah, and like we've all, we've <laughs> all, like I'm not to sound like a goofball, but like we've all freehandled Teletornis, but we're not doing. I'm not playing with it on the couch like it's my dog. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, so you know, having worked with Venomous and stuff. I actually hook and tail even a lot of the stuff in my collection today. Um, yeah. Just as a safety precaution of sure. not getting too comfortable if I need to work with Venomous too as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it was just a safety thing, but also to be frank, it's less stress on the animal too. Right. I mean, it kind of goes hand in hand with one and the other. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'll pull out animals if like I'm doing something with kids and stuff like that to talk about it, but I still take the animal out with a hook. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some species. It's just, they're not, they, they, you know, they're not a species that's meant to be a take me out and play with me type, you know, like yeah. the Jance and I, they hate the interaction that I have with them. They, it's very clear that they do not enjoy it. Same with the cyania. Like, it's very clear they just want to go back into their hide. They just want to be left alone. Yeah, it's like working with Ridley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's it's obvious they're that they just they're not into it. The funny bit to me is that I mostly have managed to avoid this Instagram stuff with these folks who are just free handling things, and then so I wound up down the rabbit hole on one of these people. And they're, you know, oh, look at me with my kings and stuff. But for some reason, they wouldn't wouldn't do that with the Bungaris. And I thought that was really funny. I was like, okay, grab that yeah. Bungaris and yeah. let's do it. Yeah. It's so good. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. You, oh, you got a little white lip, you know, in your pet and its chin. Grab the Bungaris. Let's yeah. see what happens. At night. Oh. Yeah. At night. That's it. Yeah. You guys saw the video that Bunger is eating something in water, and it no, I didn't spiraling. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was wild. It was some kind of like uh, I don't know if it was like a night a night tour in the jungle or something with like tourists, and it's like one of those like tourist travel boats. Wild. And I guess Bungers grabs some kind of aquatic snake, and the snake is clearly dead from the venom. But the Bungaris is just spiraling. It's corkscrew. strange looking. And it's yeah. crazy, and it just keeps going and going and going. Like it's like it's it, and it's floating the whole time, just floating on the surface, just spinning. Definitely got a YouTube Google search. Yeah, there. let me see if I can find it. Yeah. Now I gotta now I gotta find some of those Teletornis pictures and send them to Justin and make him uncomfortable. <laughs> you you need to find some Boiga bite pictures too yeah Somebody i've, I've seen thing. enough to know yeah. that it's not something i want to find out if there's I'm a, okay with or not there's Probably. a famous you guys remember what was it venomous uh venomous reptiles.org or what was it that one the hot herb society oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so there was a picture from hot herb society of a melanota bite to like the thumb or whatever and it was so fucked up that people thought it was an atrox bite yeah, and like, yeah that that's in that yeah. book i'm reading that yeah that Venomous bites from non-venomous snakes. Yeah, that, exactly. That's one of the case studies is that that bite. Yeah, and it's like, no, that is not a Western Diamondback. That's a Melanota, and that's why you don't do that. 
Well, and it's so interesting too, because you see people free handling these things at expos and stuff like mm -hmm. that, but they've never handled a healthy Boigo. Exactly. 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 Those things are nutty. Yeah. And like, um, and like, just not to harp on the Teletornis, but like thinking about it in my mind, the more we talk about it, like I made the joke about free handling. Like I've never sat there and like played with it. It was more like this thing won't ride a hook. I'm going to quote unquote be the tree. You know what I mean? And like get it slowly and just get it back in its enclosure so that it doesn't freak the frick out of me, you know? So it's that same thing of, is it a healthy one? Like, is it a fresh Tanzanian import yeah. from living in a drawer at some importer for however long? Or is it something that you've had in captivity and it's you've been feeding it and nurturing it and it knows that it is not just a twig, you know? I mean, that really is the truth. Um, I mean, it makes you wonder too, um, how many hobbyists have experienced that yet with some of the bites and stuff from Boiga, but no one wants to talk about it. Yeah, of course, hundred percent. I won't be one to find out to be able to tell you. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, and they come with a hefty price tag too nowadays, too. Yeah. yeah. And dude, divergence. Why is it so expensive? <laughs> no, no one has them. Why? Why is it so expensive? No, people know. have them. They're bogarting them. Maybe. Yeah, they, 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 they've been out for a while now. Yeah. Because I remember being offered some of the first ones, and I was like, why do I want this, though? Because like, they're gorgeous. Don't get me wrong, but I also look at it as like, well, I need to make sure that animal is securely in a cage. So if someone ever came over and opened the cage accidentally, um, and then if I am successful in reproducing them, what do I do with the babies? Yeah, true. You know, um, just because unfortunately legality wise right if so you sold that thing to the wrong person they could come back after you sure sure and that's i mean that's why i don't like mine aren't just going to you know anybody i have i had plenty of people when i posted pictures of that first cyania clutch i had a ton of people come out of the woodwork that were like put me on the list and i'm like no yeah sure no problem you know, just like if you're keeping boyga and i know that you're legit and that you're not going to be a complete jackass and like trying to make out with it on instagram or whatever like whatever that's one thing. If I if I know and I'm comfortable with you and I know that you you've been around the block enough to to be able to keep these things and I don't, you know, you're not going to get bit. You know, Thomas Irvin, like a prime example. Like Irvin's yep. a good kid. Irvin's responsible. I I trust Irvin and I know that Irvin is going to going to do the right things when, yeah. whenever he gets his, you know. Yeah. Um, and I say kid, he's he's an adult, but <clears throat> I'm 30 now. I can I can talk about all the, the youngsters. Yeah. All the young bloods. Well, like, and still, like, the Thomas is the individual that takes his time, has mm -hmm. the patience, learns the species, makes an educated decision. Okay, I want to pursue this species, and I don't want to do it half-assed. So, like, you know, when I did that cottonmouth article, you know, he came to me and was like, "Hey, man, I really think I want to get, you know, one or two cottonmouths. You know, what? How should I go about starting with it?" And like, he started to do his own homework, and I said, "Dude." You know what you're doing. Like you, you've just told it's a me, level of maturity, right? You've just told me everything that I was going to tell you. Yeah. You know, so 
if you're ready to do it, then do it, you know, and just be mindful that it is what it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I don't mean to talk about Boyga as if it's like, I'm, you know, selling Cobras or anything like that, but it's just one of those things where it's like you, you know, I don't want anybody to take the risk of getting bit. Yeah. But it's worse than Cobras. I don't want to get bit. Like, and it's just no, like, I don't know how I'm going to react. You don't know how you're going to react. Why even bother taking the chance? It's just, yeah. Just stir in the pot, man. Stir what's the point like what's why yeah but yeah. I, and then when i say it's worse than cobra it's like it cobra you know you're gonna die like that's just it you, you're gonna fucking die but like melanota you know i can i can get away with a little bit more you know what i mean oh I, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not allergic to bees i'm fine you know i mean i've seen like small cyania bites like i say small as in like maybe yearlings two two-year-old snakes and it was it was significant, you know. You look at some of these massive melanoda, and you look at some of these big cyania and stuff like that, and it's like that has the potential to be very like medically significant. Yeah, you know. So I just and, I don't. And let's not forget that there are animals in collections that are quote unquote known. Like I know this animal. I've worked with this animal ten years now. I know when it's going to go left. I know when it's going to go right. But you don't know when it's going to say, "Not tonight, bud. Not today." Zig when you should have zagged. Or yeah. yeah, and and that's that's something that no one ever considers. They need to. You know. Yeah, I mean, so, think about how many times like people just go in and grab an animal and stuff like that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oof. I mean, that was all part of my, like, reasoning and justification for using hooks, too, was I just never wanted to get too comfortable. Um, yeah, of course. You know, especially working with cobras and stuff like that and mambas and all kinds of stuff. I mean, that's a whole different world. Building good habits. Yeah. It, I mean, that really is the truth. Um, yeah. I mean, and I was milking some of that stuff for research and studies and stuff like that. And, you know, you just... You can't be too careful because I've seen a lot of stuff too. Yeah. 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 I remember as a kid, we, when my dad was breeding corns, we went to this one guy's house to pick up some corns from him or something. Maybe it was some mice. I can't remember, but this guy had the big, like still, I remember him very vividly. This is like the biggest mangroves I've ever seen in my life. And I like, think about it now. Like if you took a bite from one of those, like, holy crap, man, dude. So no, thank you. Yeah. It's massive. Yeah. I mean, shit, even the Western hog noses. Like, you look at some of the bites that have happened with those. Like, Jake got bit, and he's like, you know, nothing really major happened. He's like, but the bite itself hurt like crazy. He's like, that was the second most painful bite I've had, second to the Aatrox. <laughs> you know? Well, and it's going to affect everyone differently. That's, yeah. I think, like the bigger part of it, too, right? 100%. I do love that book though. That is that has become one of my favorite yeah, books of all time. It's so good. I gotta finish it still. I'm about halfway through it. I'm taking my time. But I just find that kind of stuff fascinating. You know, this like it's a lot of the Australian species where no one's ever been bit, but then that one guy gets bit and he's like, Everyone's told me that this is not that serious. And then it's like this is actually very serious. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know what it is about that that I just find so fascinating. Maybe it's just the whole like, you know new frontier like unknown territory but you know phylodryas get talked about in that book a good bit um not necessarily baroni but uh baroni um but like the uh, ulfersee 
Ulfersai. Um, there's a lot of documented bites, you know, in their native range. And, you know, there's some, some medical significance there with those a lot, it seems like. Um, and it talks about Western hog noses and Boiga and Irregularis. And, you know, it's, it's a great book. If you can hunt it down, highly recommend it. It's a little dry. It's a little technical, but it's still really interesting. It's right up our alley. Mm-hmm. Just smart yeah. enough for dumb people like us to know what it's saying. That's the best kind of book. Unless you're Rob Stone. He is the book. He could get that Brian Fry book and know exactly what's happening. Oh, don't even get me started on that book, man. I want oh. that. Send it to me if you don't want it. No, I, I'm I knew gonna... you spent like a month's rent on it. I know. Send it to me because I want to read it. Dude, I, I'm going to... You know what this is? I'm going to bring it when I see you in a couple weeks. I'm going to bring it. And then you can just flip through it. Or we can light it on fire in the yard if you hate I'm it that much. I'm not going to light it on fire. Why would I do that? Burning. I, one, day that I, one day I'm going to have to open it for something. It's going to be very reuse, resourceful and helpful. But I can't just read it, man. I just, I'm not. I'm honestly. It's not that I'm not smart enough. I'm not educated enough to comprehend the bullshit jargon that's that why you learned it in that <laughs> fucking book. Okay? Isn't that like what you were saying about the Chimera stuff, like the white cover versus the black cover? Well, no. And, and it, and it, so the white cover Chimera edition is is totally readable, totally readable, totally understandable, understandable. Yeah, totally comprehensible. Now we see where the issue lies. Put those products worked for me. <laughs> so uh, no, the white covers are great, but they're not. They're not our kind of book, and that's what it is. Is the white cover is the sciency, kind of kind of vague, kind of technical, and the black book is the hobbyist. It's it's going to show you, you know, the lamps that they might recommend, or it's going to show you the breeding seasons, opposed to the white book that actually just says, yeah, they breed in spring, you know, and like that. That's the difference. So, does one have more pictures over the other? Is that the problem? Uh, no, they're probably about the same. <laughs> Probably. I have the dart frog one, the black cover dart frog one, and it's like I went to go read it, and I was like, "This is actually more or less like a, not necessarily like a field guide, but I was like, there's really not, yeah. like it talks about every species of dart frog known to man." Well, like when I was, when I was like, I could read the same description over and over again, but yeah. so I, you know, same well, thing. I like I spent all that money on that book, and now it just kind of sits on my my nightstand and just stares at me. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's I, heavy. I got the, uh, I have the, you know, com the snakes of the lesser sundas, and I really wanted it specifically for um, some of the uh, uh, cobra stuff, like the, uh, and I wanted to see the um, uh, insularis, and there's barely anything on both <laughs> at all. And I it's realized, all those weird colubrid species that you've yeah. never even heard of. And I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. I'm like, there's there's X amount of islands in the Lesser Sundas, and there's only like 12 snakes. <laughs> so like, or maybe not 12. I, I under-exaggerate. There's probably Somehow they managed to fill up like 450 pages. Yeah. And, and that, that was the thing. Is like, I'm not mad that I got the book, but I realized that there's choice knowledge in there, and the rest of it is just above, either above my head or I just don't care. <laughs> You know, and then I got you get like Visser's book, uh, which I jokingly call the Traverserus Bible. Um, it's just Asian pit vipers. That's what it called, Asian pit vipers, and it covers everything from Calisolesma to you know uh, Protobothrops, and it's that thick, and it's the black cover, and it is 
everything. Gold mine. It is a it is literally the Tree Viper Bible. And I I can't I can't just sit and read the whole thing cover to cover. That's just not my MO, but I've read so much of that book just going like species by species or like section by section. And like I highly recommend anyone who finds it for under a hundred bucks, buy it because if you ever are curious about Asian pit vipers, like that is the book. Hands down. Yeah, I mean, that's really even like working with Kevin Messenger on this book coming out pretty soon with the Very Asian excited about that. Um, I, I mean, Kevin wrote it as, you know, a field guide, but also a field guide in English and Chinese to help with that dialect. Um, sure. I mean, it goes over the natural history. And then I did like the captive husbandry to provide some of that feedback, too. But I mean, it's just a starting point for the captive husbandry. But there's so much like packed in there with geographical ranges and stuff like that that really I think is going to help out. But um, the price tag on that book is going to be very introductory, which will be nice too for a lot mm -hmm. of people. Some of those books like start at like 120 and stuff like that. And yeah, I feel like we all just have that wish list on Amazon that's like nothing but books that just like. Maybe like once every third Christmas, we have the extra money to be able to like sure. grab, sure. you know, because like totally. I bought that I bought that dart frog book and didn't tell Katie about it, and then she saw I guess the charge on Amazon. She's like, "What was that?" And I was like, "A book." Well, like, just are you serious? Start, just wait until you start collecting like classic oh, books. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'd like that. Well, like even some of like all right, so like obviously I'm a. You know, edition Chimera junkie. I love their books. Their books are friggin' breathtaking. But like, uh, what is it? Uh, Herbert de Fawn in the Land of Israel. The book was like 150 bucks forever. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, now it's 350, 400 dollars. And I'm like, I just, I can't, I can't do it, man. I just can't wasn't, do it right now. Wasn't that the case with that first edition of the Vin Rousseau Complete Bow Constrictor book too? Didn't that, for whatever reason, like skyrocket in price like overnight? Or it's like uh, that one, there's a gecko book from Australia. It's literally geckos and pygopods of Australia. And the author, for whatever reason, the publisher stopped producing the book. The author went up selling his personal copy to a friend. And now if you want that book, you have to find a used one on Amazon in North America. It's over $900 on Amazon. Well, it's kind of like a monograph of a lappe. I mean, Rob, what's that going for now on Amazon? Like three grand? Yeah, sometimes. See, it's like, do they expect someone to pay that? Yeah, but the guy who's buying that is is a book collector, not a herpet fauna enthusiast. You know what I mean? I don't know. Mm. It seems. I don't know. I get. I, I saw point. people buying it at six hundred bucks too. Yeah, but I mean, six hundred bucks is is I is feasible. Three grand is crazy. At some point, you have to draw the line and be like, "This is never right. going to sell. I'm going to be right. might as well keep it. Like, no one's ever going to buy it." It's a pretty cool book, though. Yeah. Unless you're that that dude that bought that one of a kind Wu Tang album a couple years ago, where there was like only it was like three million dollars that he bought it for. The farmer bro. Rob. Yeah, 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 that guy. Rob. Rob, the Rob is the book. It's in his no, brain. Just, he he memorized every page. I, I know, but do, do you have the book? The three thousand dollar one. No comment. Monograph mm -hmm. of laughing. Yeah, the ninety six one. Yeah. You can neither confirm nor deny. And then Rob sold the EMT stock last week before it crashed. <laughs> <laughs>
No, I, I wound up getting the AMC TV, you know. It was a mistake. <laughs> uh, well, we are approaching three hours. It is approaching bedtime. Phil's lighting well, up his last cigarette. Well, I had fun. Before cool. he goes night-night. I had, I had a lot of fun. This yeah. I'm just glad Rob's back. Yeah. Twice. We've never had someone on back-to-back like that. It's pretty awesome. I, like I said, I'll have Rob on every week. I don't care. <laughs> if he's willing to deal with us and listen to us ramble and probably roll his eyes at half the stuff we say. No, I just love talking to you guys and then having Matt. That's unreal, man. I appreciate it. It's great. <laughs> well, it's funny because Matt sent me a message this morning. Let me see. Let me fire. Uh, let me pull it up. I want to make sure I have it verbatim. He said that. He said he said Stone coming on too. I said if that's a statement, awesome. If it's a question, I can ask him. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said you want to talk about Kalubers. I was like, well. <laughs> it's like Rob can come on whenever he wants. I don't care. Legit. He has whatever. He has an open know. invitation. I'll jump on again. Yeah, man. Yeah. You guys are awesome. We love having you on. We really appreciate you guys being here. Yeah, um, for sure. Plenty more to, yeah, plenty more to chat through. Oh, yeah. We could go on and on. Yeah, a lot of stuff on husbandry, that's for sure. I think mm-hmm. we all agree on a lot of the stuff, too. So, yeah. Well, well this show was brought to you by Steve Snakeshire and his Venom Hot Sauce and MP Cages and Exotics. Please check out both. This is episode 110 of the Herpeticulture Podcast, part of the Herpeticulture Network. We will see y'all Monday night at 9 for Snakes and Stogies 63. Sixty four, I thought. No, sixty three. I think sixty three. Sixty three. Those I can keep up with, but now we're in triple digits. It's it's getting getting crazy. It's Kafka. Yep. Anyways, we'll see y'all later. Thank you both again. Bye. Later, guys. Have a good Good night. You too. How quick Rob was to Rob's like deuces. Yep. Out in the. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. See y'all later. <laughs>